Welcome, everyone, to the Fandom Podcast Network special presentation of Time Warp 1983, 40th anniversary. This is part six. The, we are covering the movies and pop culture of November and October, November of 1983, all 40 years old. In this episode, we will be covering, of course, all the pop culture, the movies, TV, music, and notable events and news that happened in 1983. Of course, all celebrating the 40th anniversary. So welcome to Time Warp 1983. My name is Kevin. I'll be your host. But of course, I have to get my co-host on here because it's a party. And of course, as always, I'd like to welcome my brother from another mother, Mr. Kyle Wagner. What's going on, buddy? I've got the right stuff, all the right moves, but I'll never say never again because it's all a Christmas story. You've done better, but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Of course, we have to have with us always the queen of movie foo, Lacey Pants, a.k.a. Lacey Adderhold. What's going on? And you're on mute. <laughs> Woohoo! There we go. What's Hello. going on? How are you? Not a lot. I'm good. I'm good. I'm ready to talk. All right. Well, as I said, guys, this is part six of Time Warp 1983. Uh, we're talking the months of October and November, getting into the fall and Christmassy time here. And uh, this is, uh, of course, the movies of 1983. This has been a fun ride discussing all the films 40 years ago. Fandom flashback show Time Warp here on the Fandom Podcast Network. But Kyle, Lacey, we just celebrated another fun milestone and, uh, you know, a very awesome fandom. We just did Time Warp, Buffy the Vampire Slayer TV series retrospective with my lovely wife as well joining us. Uh, that was a lot of fun, so make sure you guys check that out. I'm still in the middle of my rewatch. I know you finished yours, Lacey. I'm in season three right now. So, uh, by the way, I wanted you to clarify something. Did you say that? I know you watched both. You watched all of the Buffy verse, including Angel. Did you like watch through like season three and then hit like season one of of Angel and then kind of you'd go back and forth or did how'd you do yeah. that? Yeah, for season for for season four and season one of Angel, it was. Episode one, episode one, episode two, episode two, episode three, episode three. And occasionally they'd switch up because of a a week that one was off the air and one was not. So there's actually how did you how did you keep track of that? There's a list. I actually Googled there's a there's a watch list if you want to watch Buffy Angel in order of that includes all the crossovers. So right. that I never managed to accidentally get the the wrong end of a crossover first. Um okay. but yeah, I went I went one at a time back and forth. And now there were a couple times when I liked like a specific storyline that I knew it wasn't going to mess up the crossover. So I do like three, four, five, six, and then two, three, four, five, six. Okay. okay. But I, for the most part, I stuck with it piece well, by piece. I did not include make, Dollhouse or Firefly in those as they're separate universe, uh, separate within the universe. Yeah. So. Not, not, not Buffy verse, not Buffy verse. So yeah. yeah. Well, make sure you check out uh, the Time Warp Buffy the Vampire Slayer TV series. Uh, the audio podcast is on Podbean. And, of course, make sure you check the Fandom Podcast Network. It is on YouTube as well. Now, as we briefly mentioned in that podcast, guys, and I did want to mention, uh, Aaron and I, we in September, we took a trip to the UK for three weeks. And we did a road trip on our first week up to northern England and southern Scotland. And we listened to, like, every single Time Warp or um, – Time warp that we could, uh, including like all the 82s, uh, earlier in the 83s, we hit a couple 81s because there was some long driving there. So we got 
thoroughly entertained discussing all the stuff that we had discussed. So you guys were in our ears through all of that first <laughs> week of our Love trip, it. which was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. All right, guys, here we are. Time Warp 1983, 40th anniversary, movies and pop culture. This is part six. Uh, did anyone catch up on anything recently from the last, uh, um, you know, segment or all? I, I found a physical copy of, um, was it everything wicked this way comes? Is that what the movie's called? Something, uh, something wicked. Something this way wicked comes. I haven't, I haven't watched it yet, but I found a, a hard copy disc at a thrift store. So I'm going to check that out. Cause I haven't seen that yet. Nice. Um, I promised that I was going to watch staying alive and I have yet to fulfill that promise. I really, really, really want to get your thoughts on that movie, Lacey. So. But everything else, <laughs> the last episode, everything else I'd already seen. Okay. And Kyle, you did your rewatch of all the 1983 sex comedies, right? Um, yeah, there might have been a little, some <laughs> hand lotion involved, a few other things. Uh, well, let's not go there. <laughs> all right. Well, guys, uh, let's, uh, let's go ahead and let's take a back, a step back in time. 1983. Of course, we got a picture here of my favorite time machines combined, the hot tub time machine, and of course, the DeLorean. And uh, let's travel back into 1983. All right, guys, let's go ahead and let's find out what happened back in 1983. We've been talking about some certain trends and popularities and uh, things that cost, of course. Uh, God, filled up gas today, guys. Five bucks, five and change. Missed the dollar sixteen. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, uh, milk getting more expensive too. Dollar thirty-five back in nineteen eighty. Kraft Singles cheese. Was it real cheese though? That's the question. That was a dollar forty-nine for twelve slices. I know the answer to that. What's that? It was real cheese until 1997 when the FDA said that there has to be a certain percentage of actual cheese in it to call it cheese. <laughs> Otherwise, they, now they have to call them craft singles. They can't call them craft cheese singles anymore because there's a percentage. Like it has to be over 47% or something. Gotcha. So, sorry, little nerd nerd brain there. Kevin, I can actually, I, I have a better answer for that. Too, too. Same thing with Pringles and potatoes. You know if it was real cheese or not if they were eating it in the day after. <laughs> <That's just true. laughs> All right, guys, we've got some world news. Of course, our president was Ronald Reagan. Vice president was uh, George H.W. Bush. Uh, October 1983, October 4th, Richard Noble set a new land speed record, 633.468 miles per hour driving thrust two at the Black Rock Desert in Nevada. But more importantly, guys, the first Hooters restaurant opened up in Clearwater, Florida. <laughs> uh, this is true. But, you know, Vin Diesel does that on a daily basis anymore. So Yeah, it's just, this is old, old hat now. So, yeah. Uh, October 16th, World Series, the Baltimore Orioles defeated the Philadelphia Phillies 5-0 in Game 5 to win the series four games to one for the third world championship. October 23rd, Sad day in history here. Simultaneously, suicide truck bombings destroy both the French and United States Marine Corps barracks in Beirut, killing 241 U.S. servicemen, 58 French paratroopers, and six Lebanese civilians. Uh, October 25th, United States troops invade Grenada. There you go. And if I remember, that's what inspired that uh, Clint Eastwood movie. 
Microsoft Word is first released. And in November, Martin Luther King Day at the White House Rose Garden, U.S. President Ronald Reagan signs a bill creating a federal holiday on the third Monday of every January to honor American civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. It is first observed in 1986. And here's where it started, guys. Chrysler introduces the Dodge Caravan, the first minivan. A, a true first sign of the apocalypse. Yes. <laughs> and on November 3rd, the Reverend Jesse Jackson announces his candidacy for the 1984 Democratic Party presidential nomination. And in November 13th, the first United States cruise missile arrive at Greenham Common Air Base in England amid protests from the peace campaigners. All right. Now, because you were born in 1983, we've got some celebrity births here, guys. In October, we have Tessa Thompson, of course, known from the MCU, Jesse Eisenberg, uh, Nikki Hilton, Spencer Grammer, an actress, Lizzie Hale, singer and songwriter, musician, guitarist, uh, vocalist for the band Hailstrom, Amber Rose, model and actress, and Johnny Lewis, fortunately passed away, 10 and 12. Uh, in November, uh, Julie Marie Berman, actress, Adam Devine, actor, voice actor, comedian, screenwriter, producer, and singer, Miranda Lambert, country singer, Adam Driver, the Bella Twins, Brie and Nikki, wrestling duo. Kyle, you know who those are? Well, I know very much who those are. <laughs> okay. Are they are they real twins? Yes, they are. Re- they are real twins. In fact, they are no longer with WWE, so they're going by their, their actual real name, the Garcia Twins. Okay. All right. And CJ Gibson, actress and model. But unfortunately, we also had some deaths in 1983. We had, oh, something's in here. There we go. Uh, Paul Fix, actor, The Rifleman. He had more than 300 movies and television appearances to his name and a career spanning 56 years. A good friend of actor John Wayne. He was the man who taught Wayne his, Wayne, his famous cowboy walk. He died October 14th. Next, we have Otto Messmer, the animator for Felix the Cat. Uh, look at him. I remember watching that. And next, we have coaching legend George Hallis. Hallis is one of the co-founders of the American Professional Football Association, now with the National Football League NFL. And, uh, NFL. Uh, yeah, he died October 31st. And remember this guy. Portrayed veteran cop Sergeant Phil Esterhouse on Hill Street Blues, in which he ended the introductory roll call to each week's show with Let's Be Careful Out There. Died November 22nd. Kyle. That is one of the most classic lines of early 80s television. That, yeah. that was that was a pop that was something that infiltrated all of pop culture at the time. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, guys, we had some products that were introduced in 1983. One of the most famous ones is Hot Pockets, microwavable Hot Pockets. Check this out. It's an American brand of microwavable turnovers generally containing one or more types of cheese, meat, and vegetables. Hot Pockets was uh, founded by Chef America Incorporated since April 20th, 2002. They've been uh, produced by Nestle. Kyle, the problem I had with Hot Pockets was, man, Back in the day, you couldn't quite get the microwave setting right, and they were like really hot. And you had to be careful to let them cool down because they would burn your tongue. The, the, the or they were thing, scorching on the outside and ice cold in the middle. Yeah. Actually, no, the hot pocket was the opposite of the frozen burrito. Mm. The hot pocket was cold on the outside. There you go. And in the inside, volcanic thing. 
Anyway, but the question here's what's kind of just mind blowing to me is I didn't think po- pockets were quite this old. Yeah, they yeah. didn't really. I I think in the 90s they started gaining more popularity because people were talking about him, making jokes about him, and mm-hmm. and uh, I forget someone famous I mean, was Jim screaming Gaffigan, for him. Jim Gaffigan's, you know, his his uh, he's got a great comedy show that has a significant chunk on Hot Pockets. Oh, okay, um, just just real quick too, uh, much like um, American Kraft American Cheese Singles, are we sure they were classified as meat and cheese in those? Back in the day, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Let's celebrate totally tubular 80s toys. Yes. And uh, we got a collection here. Childhood toys from the year 1983. First of all, we had the Skeletor set, price $9.99. The Skeletor costume set comes with Skeletor helmet and a weapon set based on the Masses of the Universe toy series for ages three and up. So, Kyle, did you rock these in Halloween recently? Uh, no, I, I didn't because I. But you know what's great is the first two masters of the universe toys I ever had were He-Man and Battle Cat, and I got a Castle Grayskull. Nice, nice. Uh, next, we have the Snoopy Shape Clock, four ninety nine. Snoopy Shape Clock helps you teach helps teach preschool children numbers, shapes, and how to tell time. Now, a buddy of mine had this next thing here: the Space Invaders calculator, manufactured by, by Tiger, price at twenty nine ninety nine. Has all the basic calculator function, including a Space Invaders game. Add, subtract, divide, multiply your scores, calculate your percentage wins. Play Space Invaders on eight skill levels. Yeah, teacher, this is a calculator. Get, get, in, trouble. get, get in trouble on nine <laughs> levels. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is this this was a t- I love these though because this was it was a great time for Tiger games because they had this. There was a Donkey Kong game that they it was like a two screen flip up thing that a lot of that was great, but. This is when they were throwing Space Invaders on everything and selling it like it was no tomorrow because yeah. Space Invaders was so popular. All right, guys, we got our next segment here that I always look forward to. That, of course, is the music news. All right, November 12th, Duran Duran sings their Sing Blue um, or start their Sing Blue Silver World Tour. The tour begins with sold out shows in Australia. November 26th, and this is kind of a big deal for me, guys. Quiet Riot's Metal Health album tops the U.S. album charts, the first heavy metal album to hit number one in America. This was my introduction into heavy metal. I bought this cassette, cassette, uh, eventually upgraded to CD, but this is what got me into good old hair metal. (laughs) All right, next, guys, we have, is this it here? Yes. Top Billboard 100 Hits of 1983. And we like to pick a section each time. And this time we've got 30 down through 16. And I'll read them quickly here. we got Der Commissar, After the Fire, You Are by Lionel Richie, Mr. Roboto by Styx, Up Where We Belong by Joe Cocker and Jennifer Warrens, Back on the Chain Gang by The Pretenders, Little Red Corvette by Prince, Africa by Toto, She Blinded Me with Science, Thomas Dolby, Electric Avenue, Eddie Grant, Jeopardy by the Greg Kinn Band. Uh, I Know There's Something Going On by Frida. Twilight Zone by Golden Earring. Let's Dance by David Bowie. Hungry Like the Wolf by Duran Duran. And Never Gonna Let You Go by Sergio Mendez. Guys, this is a murderous row of huge 80s hits going on here. Lacey, what were some of your favorites? I know it's a tough choice. I think it's going to be Electric Avenue and Africa. Like Those are kind of the two that I, I still, if I hear it on, you know, I immediately... 
you know, stop, stop twisting the dial and I'll sing along for, you know, the wretched voice that I have. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, as long as no one's in the car with me, those are two that I would, I will, you know, definitely participate in. Yeah. What about you, Kyle? What are you secretly singing to most out of these in the car? Evan, the only thing I can say is Domo Arigato, Mr. Roboto. I was hungry like the wolf after she blinded with Pick your favorites. Come on, man. <laughs> no, these are my favorites. These are my favorites. <laughs> okay, these, so these are, Mr. All Mr. Roboto. Like, yeah, you can't go wrong with Mr. Roboto. You can't go wrong with Africa. She blinded me with science. Is this a cult classic? And Hungry Like the Wolf, Duran Duran. I mean, that's... I mean, okay, I gotta quit. he shouldn't be penalized because his, his favorites, you know, have grammatical sentence structure that can make fun. And, and okay, I got to ask you a question, Kyle. Uh-huh. When MTV was on, there was some iconic videos from these songs. Hungry Like the Wolf. I was just going to say, because that's one of my favorites on there, too. But the song, the, the videos that really stand out for me are Hungry Like the Wolf. Uh, Twilight Zone because it was weird. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember yeah. that video. Mm-hmm. And of course, Mr. Mr. Roboto. Um, yeah. Uh, I, which one do you think was the biggest video on MTV? Was it Hungry oh, Like the Wolf? It was Hungry Like the Wolf. That yeah. that was constant on M- MTV. I gotta say though, another one of my favorites was Electric Avenue. Yeah, yeah. Um, Dirk Amasara. Uh oh, I like that song. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Africa by Toto, of course, now is in all the Yacht Rock uh, classics, go-tos. It's great, you know. Uh, but I think my personal favorite, because I was just singing to it the other day, is Mr. Roboto by Styx. Of course, that was not pleasing a lot of hardcore Styx fans at the time. And the yeah. whole Kilroy thing was just weird. But look at this murderer's row here, guys. I mean, this oh, is yeah. hardcore hits here. Yeah, I mean, th- these are all ones that were on the radio constantly, and these are definitely 80s defining songs like you can go back these most of these songs were on are in any massive 80s collection all right i have a question and the crazy thing is i only recognize like nine of them you know how you hear uh when uh the military is trying to like annoy some dictator outside his house they'll play like loud music over and over again or whatever mm-hmm. if you were in that situation if you were that dictator um and someone was playing one of these songs over and over again to try to annoy you which one would it be I mean, it would just, I feel like for me, it would be like you are by Lionel Richie. <laughs> I feel like can I be honest? It might be back on the chain gang. Well, I like that song. That is not one I can listen to on repeat over <laughs> and over again. Cause it gets way too stuck in your head. But I think you have to give credit to let's dance because the number of times it says let's dance, even yeah, yeah. because, because the chorus is so let's dance. And then there's, <laughs> Like I feel like that over and over again would just really make me want to murder somebody. I'm having trouble remembering the video for I Know There's Something Going On, the song I remember, but I don't remember seeing a video for it. I turned 50 this year. I can't remember any videos other than (laughs) AHA, the video where they're they're, the AHA video where they're in pencil and then Peter Gabriel uh, with all the fruit and then You Can Call Me Al with Chevy Chase. Like. Kyle, I, I want to ask you because "Up Where We Belong" by Joe Cocker and Jennifer Warns that feels that that song feels like it's just constantly in play for like twenty years after it comes out. What was the movie? Yeah. Wasn't it in a movie? It was, it was on a soundtrack. Officer and Gentleman. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Okay. yeah, My brain, my brain didn't have that, but I knew yep. you would. 
<laughs> All right, guys. Next, we have primetime TV shows of 1983, and we are covering the top five. We finally made it to the top five, and those are number five, Simon and Simon with 23.8 million views. The A-Team at number four on NBC for 24 million. Dynasty on ABC at number three with 24.1. At number two, we had 60 Minutes at 24.2. And number one, we had Dallas on CBS at 25.7 million. Were Kyle, we at who shot JR at that point? Weren't we right around mm, that point of Dallas? I want to say that was a little later, but I could be wrong. I was not watching it. I only was catching this stuff secondhand. What, do you remember Lacey at all? Um, Maybe... Oh, she's looking like, up. She's doing it. Here. I feel like it's a couple years later, but let me let me see. By the way, I had no friends watching 60 Minutes. It was all old people and mm. maybe my parents. But my parents even didn't watch 60 Minutes. But, but let's be let's be honest here. This, this top five right here is a murderer's row of 80s defining television. True. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, these are all shows that lasted at least half the decade. Uh, I did not get into nighttime soaps. I did not watch Dallas. I did not watch Dynasty. And I actually have never seen a full episode of Simon and Simon that I can remember. Never have. I'm clutching my pearls here. I'm clutching my pearls here. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. They liked it. I've never seen it. Uh, A-Team, I was all, I jumped on A-Team. Like, you couldn't, yeah. Yep. But, um, did you get an answer to when? Uh, uh, di- it's, there's there are conflicting uh, responses. One says 1981. Says 1981. I'm thinking it may be the 8081 season. Okay, it so that happened before. Okay. So yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, which means I mean you know, if they do something like that on a cliffhanger, everyone's going to come back and be like, what? you know, like everybody yeah. wants to make sure they're they're you know able to talk about all the gossip. You know, I, we had one TV in the house at this time. We didn't get a second TV until the mid '80s, and so you know, we kind of watched. My my parents wanted to watch, and they they just weren't Dallas Dynasty Falcons Crest people. You know, it was other stuff. Yeah. They would watch a lot of sitcoms, but you know, Friday night. I think it was eighteen came on Friday nights. Remember correctly, whatever. Mm-hmm. So definitely watch that. Um, but yeah, I never watched Simon and Simon. But we did have some uh, TV uh, debuting at this time in October. Of 1983 uh october we had the yellow rose on nbc scarecrow and mrs king on cbs was that the show you said that you watched some and it's just terribly dated Lacey? i i loved that show as a kid i did i bought the all of them on dvd and it was like the first 14 episodes they it was like they were struggling to figure out a way for the because mrs king has to be a she has to have a new a different job each time all stereotypical they were all, stuff. They were that all they were, like yeah. florist and makeup artist and secretary yeah. and and you yeah. know tennis tennis uh, ingenue. <laughs> <laughs> they were all. It was right. so so dated. It was. It's a great show. Don't get me wrong. Um, but it's very much like mommy should stay in the kitchen. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, we also had Whiz Kids, uh, Newton's Apple on PBS, Sally Syndication, Sally Jennifer Slept. Excuse me. Was it was Sally Sally Jeff, Jesse Raphael's show? Uh, yes, that's probably what it was. In okay. syndication, yeah. There you go. Uh, Jennifer slept here on NBC. Bay City Blues and the Match Game Hollywood Squares Hour. I remember catching that from time to time. So yeah, uh, and then we also had some TV ending this year, October eighth. The Incredible yeah, Hulk finally. Kyle, yes. I just real quick. I wanted to just bring attention to Whiz Kids. Oh yes, phenom- yes. That was a phenomenal show. 
that was one of those 80 shows that got the Firefly treatment. They never put it in a regular time slot. It was a great science fiction, just science detective type show, really fun. And just it only lasted one season because CBS was constantly bouncing it around in different time slots. Uh, gotcha. I, I remember it, but I don't remember it. If that makes sense. So, yeah, it was um, that. And then on the Disney Channel, you had the Edison twins. So I always mix those two up with three to one contact as well. I love mm. three to one contact. Yeah. Uh, so as I mentioned, ending this year in October was The Incredible Hulk, which started uh, the year previously in 82. October 29th, The Dukes. Kyle, was that a spinoff from something or like The no, Dukes of Hazard? Was it a spinoff, Lacey, or was it just they kind of renamed it and still started showing episodes, basically showed old um, episodes? I think that after they had uh, the, se- the season six where the other cousins came in, I think they sort of just started calling it The Dukes on – other things, um, or maybe. In November, Pac-Man ended its short run, and also Bay City Blues. The Pac-Man cartoon is still one of the weirdest experiences. Really bizarre. I remember it. (laughs) Uh, We had some celebrity film debuts. Uh, We had Kelly Preston from 10 to Midnight. That was the Charles Bronson film. Uh, Mimi Rogers in Blue Skies Again. Uh, Alan Ruck in Bad Boys, Matt Fuhrer in The Lords of Discipline, Ali Sheedy in Bad Boys, and Casey Samosco in Class. Oh, Bad Boys is that old? I didn't think Will Smith and Martin Lawrence were around at that point. I think that's a different Bad Boys. I had to. I'm sorry. I had to. Come on. I was. Th- I was thinking it. I was thinking it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, we are discussing now the movies of 1983. And uh, we got some some interesting ones coming up here. And we did add a couple of films at the end to the cutting room floor that we'll mention briefly because my wife, they're they're both horror films. My my wife wanted to mention something about one of them, and I'll get to that then. But uh, we are talking first in October. And we have Sean Connery returns as James Bond in Never Say Never Again. Had a good theatrical run, uh, made $160 million back in the day there. Spectre, agents under the command of Ernest Blofeld, infiltrate a U.S. Air Force base situated in the U.K. and steal two Tomahawk cruise missiles. When NATO is held ransom, the British reevaluate their 00 agents and send James Bond to recapture the warheads and kill Blofeld. Directed by Irving Kirshner. Of course, Star Wars fans know him as the director of Empire Strikes Back. Of course, stars Sean Connery, Kim Basner, and Klaus Maria Brandauer. I think that's the villain there. Kyle, do you have some trivia for Never Say Never Again? I do have some trivia for Never Say Never Again. The title was allegedly based on a conversation between Sir Sean Connery and his wife. After Diamonds Are Forever, he told her he never played James Bond again. Yet there he was playing James Bond again. Her response was for him to never say never again. (laughs) Now, even more interesting is a young Steven Seagal was the movie's martial arts director. One day he broke Sean Connery's wrist during training. Connery went along with that injury for a number of years, thinking it was just a minor pain. Mm. Um, this was not part of the film series produced by MGM and Dan Jack. Executive producer Kevin McClory was producer and co-writer of Thunderball, won a legal battle against Ian Fleming to make his own Bond movie. The settlement stipulated it effectively had to 
it had to effectively be a remake of Thunderball. And this is also Rowan Atkinson's first movie. He later created, of course, James Bond in the Johnny English film. I think that's interesting about the whole, like, he's just basically remaking Thunderball. <laughs> I uh, I kept trying to figure out, like, which one was a stuntman, you know, especially the motorcycle scene. Uh, but the scene that I actually forgot about completely, because this was during the time video games were becoming a huge deal, like arcades and stuff. And there's a scene in the film where he's challenged by the, the villain in this to play this futuristic video game where they're holding these metal rods and it's like this strategy game and it like shocks you or does something. And then, you know, uh, finally, you know, after falling down a couple of times, James Bond, you know, uh, Sean Connery is able to turn the tables on it, but it's, it's a silly scene, but it's kind of funny. And I just love seeing the eighties arcade games, uh, in this, like, I guess it's like a casino or something like that. So, uh, Kyle, your thoughts on never say never again. It's one of it's one of those weird Bond films. It's kind of some people remember it because it was Sean Connery returning to Bond, but it's not a very much beloved Bond film. It's it's weird. It's it's one of the weirder Bond films. I, I remember the thing. I think I think the thing I remember most about it was two things: the exploding pin thing that he had, and they played that game, that world domination game, where they got shocked every. Yes, and the shock would increase with the amount of deaths in it. So there was <laughs> there was a scene that looked it was kind of cheesy. It was the where he rescues um uh Kim Basinger's character on the horse and they jump off the building into the water with the horse. <laughs> yeah, there's that. Uh Lacey, your thoughts on Never Say Never Again. Have you seen it? Yeah, oh yeah. I I have the the whole collection. Um, I, uh, I will say that there's definitely a, a, a contingent of, uh, of true bond fans who just, just like they completely disregard this film because it wasn't uh, officially in the Canon. It kind of sits over on the side with casino, with, with the original casino Royale, um, as the, uh, the two that were, you know, adjacent in some way. So, I have never seen the original Casino Royale, but I found it recently on uh, DVD, so I'm going to check it out. But I would include this in my my Bond collection, it, you know, if I wanted, if I was a completist with Bond collection, which yeah, I'm I not. I got it. It's in my, but, yeah, it's in my collection because if it's him, it feels Bondy. I love the location shoots, and he's got his Bond charm in it, you know, uh, and he's just not too old enough to pull it off, you know. And when you look at like. I'll be honest with you. I think he pulled it off a lot better in, than uh, Roger Moore did in Octopussy. To be completely, well, yeah, I mean, yeah. he, was younger, <laughs> you know? he was younger. And than I actually, yeah. and by the way, this is a better film in my opinion than Octopussy. Just my opinion. Right on. <laughs> All right, guys. Next we have is a romantic comedy called Romantic Comedy. Uh, made about a little over $5 million in the box office at the time. Starring Dudley Moore and Mary Steenburgen. Two of the screen's finest comic actors uh, star in a successful writing partners whose timing is perfect on stage, but amusingly pathetic in their love life. Uh, directed by Arthur Hill and co-starring Francis uh, uh, Sternhagen. Uh, Kyle, you have some trivia on romantic comedy. Romantic comedy, the original Broadway stage production of romantic comedy by Bernard Slade opened on November 8th, 1979 at the Ethel Barrymore theater where it ran for 
396 performances until it closed on the 18th of October, 1980. One of the two 1980 American comedies involving couples who are friends and writing partners who became involved romantically. The movies are best friends and romantic comedy. The film was made and first released about four years after its source play of the same name by Bernard Slade was first staged in 1970. Uh, so best friends, who's in best friends again? I think I remember that we, we talked Bert, about Bert it. Bert and Goldie. That's right. That's right. I actually think I liked that one better. Um, There's a reason for that. Yeah. And I want to get your opinion on this real quick, Lacey, but I just want to say this. I have an issue with a lot of these plays that are first plays and then they try to bring them to the theater. Uh, I think I brought that contention up in the last episode, but there were some movies that pull it off. Oh, it was the one with um, Superman. Um, uh, one that I yeah. I didn't care for that one. I know you like it, Lacey, but for me, it. it just didn't work. Um, but I thought like noises off worked for me for whatever reason. Um, but this one, you could definitely tell the way it is. Uh, and you know, um, I don't know how anyone finds Dudley more attractive. I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. I just don't get this. I, I <laughs> just, my thing. I, I didn't like his character in this movie. I don't, I, it's not a physical thing about him. It's just him because he seems to play himself all the time. Can you guys prove me wrong? Is there a movie he did not play Dudley Moore? Dudley Moore? He, Thank he, you very much. Okay. He, he, uh, he, 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 he was going to dazzled. He's... What's that? I think that he did well in the original Bedazzled. Hmm. I mean, um, and then there was the Crazy People one, I think it was. Crazy um, People was hilarious. The one about the advertising. Yeah, that one, I, yeah. I have to go back and rewatch that, but I do remember thinking that was funny. But what were I'll your thoughts on Romantic Comp? The tagline for Jaguar. It's just never, yeah. Um, <laughs> romantic comedy was not funny. Uh, it wasn't funny at all. It was full of divorce and... It was depressing. Yeah, it was very depressing. There was nothing, but I feel like in the 80s, satire and sarcasm were kind of at the peak of their like i just i feel like it it didn't it didn't hit right if you don't do the sarcasm properly or if you don't yeah. do the satire properly it's just not it's just not fun you don't get that zing off of it Kyle did you see this movie yeah honestly no and that's in part because for whatever reason Dudley Moore is just one of those actors i've never clicked yeah. Oh, see, I, I love just, Dudley Moore. I just didn't like this movie. <laughs> well, what's your favorite Dudley Moore movie besides Arthur? Crazy people. It, it would have to be Crazy People or um, uh, uh, the Santa Claus. Uh, the Santa Claus? No, yeah, yeah, the San, or the Santa Claus the movie that he was good Santa in that. That's the one yeah, movie. I always mix those two up. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I, that's the one movie of his I actually enjoy. Yeah, talking okay. about like elf control and elf. Yeah, it just, it's just mm -hmm. super cute, and there's a lot of fun play on words and. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of depressing guys, uh, Rumblefish <laughs> uh, made uh, just under $3 million uh, for its theatrical run here. Uh, Rusty James is a leader of a small dying gang in an industrial town. He lives in the shadow of the memory of his absent older brother, the motorcycle boy, uh, played, of course, by Mickey Rourke. Uh, Matt Dillon plays Rusty James. His mother has left. His father drinks. School has no meaning for him, and his relationships are hollow. He is drawn into one more gang fight, and the events that follow begin to change his life. Uh, director, of course, Fran uh, Francis Ford Coppola. This movie, of course, was shot in black and white, starring Matt Dillon, 
Mickey Rourke, Diane Lane, Dennis Hopper, and Nicholas Cage. Kyle, you have trivia for Rumblefish. I do. Bear with me. I'm going to add a special effect here. The sound technicians on this film had a hard time hearing Mickey Rourke's dialogue on set. After asking him to speak louder, as a result, who referred to the production as Mumblefish. That's funny. (laughs) (laughs) Mickey Rourke remembers he approached his character as an actor with Noah, who no longer finds his work interesting. Jack Nicholson turned down the role of father because he didn't like the script. To mix the black and white footage of Rusty James and the motorcycle boy in the pet store looking at the Siamese fighting fish in color, Stephen H. Burham shot the actors in black and white and then projected that footage on a rear projection screen that put the fish tank in front of it with the tropical fish and shot it all with color film. Um, This is one of Francis Ford Coppola's top five favorite films of his own. Kevin, I have a question for you about this film. And Lacey, yes. both of you. Um, By the way, for the record, I just watched this for the first time um, streaming. Was Matt Dillon a thing, or did Hollywood try to make Matt Dillon a thing? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I think that Hollywood definitely tried to make him a thing. Uh, but I don't know. I, I think it was the roles that he chose that didn't help him. And I'm going to be completely honest, guys. I don't know why Essie Hinton was a thing in school that you had to read Essie Hinton books Everything that Essie Hinton has written is depressing AF. And I don't ever want to revisit this movie again. I don't want to revisit uh, certain other things. I don't know what it is about Essie Hinton that makes you want to go, oh, I'm enjoying high school. Let's watch someone that's not enjoying high school. Let's watch people with horrible lives, horrible parents, and get in gang fights all the time. (laughs) And by the way, the one good thing about this, Mickey Rourke looking pretty hot. Just going to say. Lacey, what is your thoughts? Okay, I have many, many thoughts. Number one, Matt Dillon is a thing. He was always a thing uh, from um, Little Darlings and Outsiders. I mean, he he had some He was really good in Little Darlings. Yeah, right. Um, But I think the interesting thing is he played, the role was similar to the other roles that he plays. Yeah. You know, the kid from the streets, that kind of thing. But he had a vulnerability to him because he actually cared in that film. Right. So outsiders was different. Rumblefish, Dude, I, I keep trying Rumblefish. <laughs> like I've tried so many times. I just can't yep. make it past like the first 20. I just can't like, it's just, I don't like drama. Like, you don't like drama. You don't like drama. And I guess yeah. <laughs> it's silly. Like it's silly. Like, like the, his older brother's name is the motorcycle boy. Like what? That's just yeah. like, it doesn't, and the, and the turn the turn that Mickey Rourke's character takes as Michael or as Motorcycle Boy, he gets fixated on this fish, these well, fishes, which, which yeah, are the yeah, which are the which are the Rumblefish fishes, and then he wants to steal them and set them free, and then he gets shot in the back by a police officer that's been kind of a dick the whole movie to them, and this is the police officer. This is the police officer is the actor, and I can't remember the actor's name, but he was the um the Cuban um, invader, if I remember correctly, or the Russian invader in uh, Red Dawn. He was the one that was like working on the plan to try to find the Wolverine kids. He was the yeah, same guy. Still has, 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, like, uh, Rumble Fish for me was just like, I'm, I'm out. Like, I couldn't yeah. make it through the book. I couldn't make it through the movie. And the whole idea that Francis Ford Coppola, like, okay, he does a lot of drama. Fine. But I, I found that as a general rule, he's just somebody that I haven't really found much interest in along yeah. the way. Yeah. I'm not saying he's a bad guy. Kyle, have you seen thing. Rumble Fish? I have tried a couple of times to watch Rumble Fish, and I just can't get through it. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> it's a, it's a tough. I I just don't get the fascination with S.E. Hinton books. I feel they, like we should do a mystery science theater, and I would actually watch it. Yeah, I just I just don't get it. All right, guys. The next one we have is All the Right Moves, starring Tom Cruise. Made just over seventeen million dollars in its theatrical run back in the day. He has everything at stake. He can't afford to lose. He's got to make all the right moves. Sensitive study of a headstrong high school football star who dreams of getting out of his small western Pennsylvania steel town with a football scholarship. His equal ambitious coach aims at a college position, resulting in a clash which could crush the player's dreams. I have a physical copy of it right here. Check that out. Directed by Michael Chapman. Stars Tom Cruise, Leah Thompson, and Craig T. Nelson. What free Craig T. Nelson's character is getting ready because he's looking for a TV job later. I'm not sure. Anyway, uh, Kyle, I think that you've got some trivia for all the right moves. I do have some trivia, but first I just want to say a lot of Craig T. Nelson films in the early 80s. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he was around much more than I remembered. So, but a little trivia of all the right moves. Considered a male version of Flashdance, both movies were about a young central character living in a Pennsylvania town and following a dream to become a success and get out. She's a welder in Pittsburgh, and he is destined to stay in his mill town unless he can score a scholarship. The film replaces Flashdancing with American football, and both films had a distinctive rock soundtrack. Just real quick about that. We talked about Flashdance earlier in this run, and they both came out in 83. Flashdance, of course, came out first and was huge. It almost would be kind of a fun double feature to watch these two back to back. It might even be the same universe. Who knows? Um, yeah. <laughs> the director wanted Leah Thompson and Tom Cruise to go undercover to remember what high school was like. They went to separate school schools, and while Cruise was spotted after just one day because someone recognized him from Taps, Thompson went four days, but was asked out by many guys and got caught smoking. <laughs> <laughs> smoking in the girls' room, Kevin. Yeah. <laughs> Tom Cruise and Leah Thompson performed a majority of their own nudity in their love scene. However, body doubles were used for insert shots. The same body doubles were also used earlier in the film for insert shots in the makeout scene in the car. Okay. I, I have my really wife has bad, that's a bad grammatical way to say that. Yeah. Hey, that's, I, I, that's, I, that's IMDb trivia for you there, Lacey. Yeah. Now, my wife is convinced, and I'm not sure, but it's also out there on the internet. And, you know, almost everything on the internet is true, right? That you actually see a little bit of Tom Cruise's little Tom Cruise in this, in this film. I'm going to leave it for you guys to search that out for yourself, but I just have to mention that. <laughs> I, I was too busy looking for a little bit of Leah Thompson, so. Yeah. Um, Let's say. Um, Lacey, your thoughts on all the right moves. Did you see it? 
I did. It's basically, it's just so depressing. It's the opposite of risky business. It's 100% the opposite of risky business. It's also a lot more depressing than flash dance. <laughs> right. I mean, it's just like, you just can't, and you just want to murder, um, Craig T. Craig T. Nelson's character. He's just such a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I watched it the one time. It's a good movie. I'll never watch it again. It's just sad. It's depressing. It's annoying. Everybody's a bad person. Like, yeah, I'm going to, um, I might watch one more scene over again. Then I'm going to return the DVD to, uh, um, the thrift store. (laughs) Kyle. Um, (laughs) I I just want to say that this movie was done in the nineties by MTV much better. And it was called varsity. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want your life. Yes. I don't want his life. This is crazy. (laughs) All right, guys, the next film that we have, and guess what? I just literally watched this for the first time about an hour ago. I just finished watching it. <laughs> this is the Dead Zone uh, thriller, suspense, theatrical. Made just over $20 million in its original theatrical uh, run. And the poster says, in his mind, he has the power to see the future. In his hands, he has the power to change it. Stephen King's The Dead Zone. Johnny Smith wakes up from a coma due to a car accident only to find that he has lost five years of his life and yet gained psychic powers. Foreseeing the future appears to be a gift at first, but ends up causing problems. Directed by David Cronenberg, of course, based on the Stephen King novel, stars Christopher Walken, Brooke Adams, Tom Skerritt, uh, and um, uh, what's his name? Uh, the, the, um, the, the West Wing guy, um, Charlie Sheen, Martin Sheen. Martin Sheen's Martin. in as well. Um, I just want to say too, I was trying to find it for free and I finally found it for free on YouTube. But what was funny was Aaron sent me a link to a, a version on YouTube that had some other uh, uh, subtitles from another country on it. But when I tried to play it, it wouldn't work in my, in us. So I found it on YouTube where they instead cut up the film into like four, like anywhere from eight to 10 parts and you just hit play and then it will play the first part and then continue the movie on the next video and the next video. I think they get around that on YouTube because in certain areas, I guess that you couldn't, you couldn't put up the whole movie. Otherwise you might get blocked by Paramount or whoever holds the rights huh. to the film, but I did end up watching it and I have thoughts on it. Kyle, you got some trivia on the dead zone. Yes, I do. First of all, I'm going to say this, the TV show with Anthony Michael Hall, so much better than the I did see the first season of that. Don't remember it very well, but I did see it. Um, this film and Stephen King's novel are both loosely based upon the life of famous psychic Peter Herkos. Herkos claimed to have acquired his alleged powers after falling off a ladder and hitting his head. Written in 1979, the novel by Stephen King was the first book of his to reach number one on the bestseller list, hardcover. A milestone for King, who said it was one of my most successful ever. It was 428 pages. And he would write something called The Stand. That was he that made this seem like a quick read. But um, director David Cronenberg had to reshoot the scene in which John Smith has his first premonition. It showed a little girl's room burning and a small E.T. doll could be seen on one of the shelves. The scene had to be reshot when Universal Pictures threatened to file a lawsuit against them. Um, director David Cronenberg fired a 357 Magnum loaded with blanks just off camera to make Smith's flinches seem more involuntary. This was Christopher Walken's own idea. I want to throw in real quick too. This was a very weird time for Christopher Walken because if I'm remembering correctly, and I could be wrong, you guys can correct me. 
this was his first film after everything, after the death of Natalie Wood. And people yes. were like, what are you doing making this movie after what you just went through? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Plus there was questions that he like, you know, either knew or heard something and wasn't talking. <laughs> yeah. Depending on who you listen to. Yeah. Uh, okay. So Kyle, you've seen the film, right? Yeah. It's been a while since I've watched it. I mean, honestly, it's, it's an okay film. It's not one to me that has a ton of rewatchability. I would agree. Uh, Lacey, have you seen it or you were like, no, I don't like Stephen King. Not, not, I'm sure he's a lovely man. I just don't like horror and I can't stand David Cronenberg because I don't like body horror. And those are basically the two people you put together. If, if, I'm just saying, like, if if David Lynch had anything to do with this movie, it would be like the trifecta of the reasons I'm not going to watch it. <laughs> I am not a huge Cronenberg fan. Uh, he's more hit or miss than hit for me. The only film that I really watch that I like is A History of Violence. That was a great film. Uh, but, yeah, there was weird scenes with scissors in this movie that I couldn't quite understand why it was happening. Uh, it is a tough watch. It's interesting. Christopher Walken is good in it. Um, and there's an interesting plot here that is kind of happening in 1983 that we'll touch on in a little bit of the end of the world situation where he foresees um, Martin Sheen's character who eventually becomes president and he wants to start a nuclear war. And so, spoiler alert, he tries to assassinate him. It doesn't happen. But what does happen is that when he tries to assassinate him, uh, Martin Sheen's character freaks out and grabs a baby to use as a human shield off of a lady. And that ends his presidential bid right away instead of getting killed. And then at the end, he kills himself. <laughs> Wasn't um, just a quick question. Uh, first of all, yes, I absolutely agree with Kyle that I loved the series. The Anthony Michael Hall series is fantastic. I love that. Um, question about, the Martin Sheen character in the presidential bid, isn't that, I feel like I read somewhere that in Smallville, when they did the flash forward, like, or the, you know, the scene where they, they imagine Lex as the president with the white suit and the blood and everything. I, from what I understand, that was based on something from the dead zone. Is that what you're, is that the scene you're talking about? I don't know that at all because I don't remember that uh, story from Smallville or that um, okay. uh, behind the scenes, but I would not be surprised. I, I think it was kind of made in tribute. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, because Mart uh, Martin Sheen's character is he he's he's very charismatic, but dude's crazy. <laughs> gotcha. And yeah, it's 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 depressing though. I mean, especially when this when Walken is trying to convince this guy's fought this father to for God, not let his kid go play hockey out on the ice of the, uh, uh, the, the ice, uh, lake cause his kid's going to die when it breaks through. And that's a tough mm -hmm. scene to watch, but yeah, Kyle, not rewatchable. I do remember the series. I did watch the first season. I do, do remember enjoying it. All right, guys, the next film, very interesting. The Osterman weekend made just over $6 million. And, uh, this is a Sam Peckinpah film. This is Sam Peckinpah's last film. What would you do if a total stranger proved to you that the three closest friends were Soviet agents? The Osterman Weekend. The one weekend of the year you won't want to miss. During the Cold War, in this adaptation of Robert Ludlum's novel, of course, the guy who wrote the Bourne series, 
the host of an investigated news program is being convinced by the CIA that the friends and associates he's invited to weekend with him in the country are actually engaged in nefarious conspiracy, which threatens national security. Of course, I mentioned director Sam Peckinpah, stars Rutger Hauer, John Hurt, Meg Foster, and Craig T. Nelson. <laughs> um, Kyle, I want to touch on the first trivia here that I have because I actually have this DVD here of the Osterman weekend here. I want to show this to you guys real quick. All right. I'm going to bring it up right there. Osterman weekend, Robert Ludlum's. And it's a special edition. And it's a special edition because on the back and in the trivia, it says here, according to the document, documentary, Alpha to Omega, exposing the Osterman weekend, came out in 2004, Sam Peckinpah hated Robert Ludlum's novel, and he did not like the screenplay for the movie either. But regardless of his dislike for the book, Peckinpah still accepted the director's job as he was desperate to reestablish his legendary director position in the Hollywood film community. And I'll tell you this right now, the, the movie's interesting. It's got its Sam Peckinpah feel, you know, the Wild Bunch and all the other famous violent movies that he's done. It's not a great movie, but I'll tell you right now, the documentary you get with this DVD, much better than the film. <laughs> and the actors and the people uh, that talk about what happened, it's very, very interesting. Kyle, what's the rest of the trivia? Well, we talked about it too with Sam Peckinpah's last film. He was in ill health, health throughout the shoot. Of course, the long-term toll of his drug and alcohol abuse suggested to many in the production that he was dying. Peckinpah would go off and take opportune naps, but still come and delivered his initial cut of the, this movie on time despite sickness and exhaustion. This is where it gets even more bizarre because he was fired when he refused to re-edit the movie after it was screened for a test audience on May 25th, 1983 and met with a confused and mixed reaction. Producers Peter S. Davis and William N. Panzer took... Very familiar names, by the way, Kevin. And we might know those names. Um, took over editing with the assistance of editor Edward M. Abrams um, and dr drastically altered the opening and ending sequences. So Kyle, you mentioned Peter S. David and William M. Panzer. They are uh, responsible for Highlander. They were the I'm ones that, that got brought the original film to uh, the screen and produced, and also um, the sequels and, of course, the TV series. I was going to say, they're familiar with cutting things. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so Sam Peckinpah, he... he uh, he basically kind of dug his own grave with uh, Hollywood and he was a, apparently a dick to work with among other things. He was an alcoholic, I think. Uh, but uh, yeah, the 78 minute documentary in this DVD is, uh, is entertaining. Uh, Rutger Hauer is good in this. The concept of this movie is very cool. It's worth a watch. Uh, I don't know if I would consider it rewatchable, but definitely the documentary. Uh, did you ever see this movie, Kyle? I saw it a good while ago. It's not one that's in a lot of rotation, but I remember seeing it on HBO back in the eighties. The, the thing I always have sent out to me and it's any movie that she's in is Meg Foster. Meg Foster, Foster and those eyes. Yeah. It's the eyes. It's the, it's yeah. obviously the eyes. I've even seen an adaption of the Scarlet letter she was in. And all we talked about during, it was in school and all we talked about was her eyes and how they were freaking us all out. But yeah, I mean, anything Meg Foster is like her eyes take over the, the movie. I got to tell you, this poster is freaking cool. I love it is this. a very cool. I poster. love this poster. Lacey, have you ever seen the Osterman Weekend? I, you know, I, I think I did. I, I, it wasn't memorable enough for me to tell you when I saw it, but I feel like I've seen it. 
because there's one I looked at the trailer when when you you know when I was looking at the notes and I watched the trailer and I do remember the one of the scenes where they're standing at the airport and they're talking about you know uh, but yeah I I I know I remember it but I couldn't tell you when I saw it That's and I'm it. pretty sure I won't watch it again. <laughs> I first actually discovered it when I found it on uh, Laserdisc. Before we started doing 83, I got it like last year or the year before and I uh, got on Laserdisc and then I found out about this um, documentary. And so I had to uh, go buy the DVD. All right, guys, the next film we have is The Right Stuff. Just uh, broke over 21 million in this theatrical run. How the Future Began. The U.S. space program's development from the breaking of the sound barrier to the selection of the Mercury 7 astronauts from a group of test pilots with a more seat-of-the-pants approach than the program's more cautious engineers preferred. Director Philip Kaufman stars Sam Shepard, Scott Glenn, Ed Harris, Dennis Quaid, Fred Ward, and Barbara Hershey. Kyle, what are some trivia on The Right Stuff? First off, before we talk about the right stuff, I have to give a shout out to the lovely Haley Stoddard, who is our science queen of all things on the Fandom Podcast Network. She loves NASA. She loves the space program. This is right up her alley for favorite movies. Um, I'm a huge fan of NASA myself, so I was, I've, I've always been a fan of this film. With some trivia, although the producers discouraged the cast from contacting the real people they were portraying, Dennis Quaid reached out to Gordo Cooper after learning they lived just a few miles from each other. The two became friends, and Cooper encouraged Quaid to get his pilot's license. Nice. Guys, can, can I just say, we all should live Dennis Quaid's life. I mean, yeah. <laughs> he's just, he, he, he lives the life. Further on, while several of the lead actors ended up choosing to meet their real-life counterparts, Scott Glenn elected not to meet with Alan Shepard. Scott said he wanted to get da down Shepard's character and nuances by observation and by hearing other points of view. After filming the real Alan Shepard wrote writer and director Philip Coppin and commented on Scott Glenn's spot on performance, except for not being nearly as good looking as he was. I think this is an interesting approach, but I, I would like live and breathe and haunt the person if I had it. Uh, Cause I would want to see everything they did to try and get it right. But you know, kudos to Scott Glenn for doing his approach. Yeah. Um, during the weekend of April 4th, 1999, Gus Grissom's lost Liberty Bell 7 capsule was located and recovered on the ocean floor 90 miles northeast of the Great Abaco Islands in the Bahamas. It underwent a restoration and went on a national tour before being placed in a permanent exhibit at the Cosmosphere, a space museum in Hutchinson, Kansas. The hatch, which many thought would have proved or disproved Grissom's contention that it blew open on its own, has not been recovered. Inside the capsule, the resource found a large number of mercury dimes that Grissom had brought along as souvenirs. During the bar fight, the bar scene before Grissom's flight, two rolls of dimes can be seen in the bar. Upon his death on December 7th, 2020, Chuck Yeager was the last surviving real character. Guys, I have never seen the right stuff. Never saw it. Never saw it when it played on TV. Um, I was going to try and watch this for this, um, uh, podcast. I didn't own a physical copy of it. I can't find it streaming anywhere for free. And I was like, oh, maybe I should just rent it and watch it. And then I saw that it was over three hours long and I was just like, nope, <laughs> can't do it. Sorry. Uh, Kyle, your thoughts on the right stuff. This is one of those movies. And I know it's in a, first of all, it's an amazing cast and they do an amazing job. It is a long movie and not one that you're going to revisit often. But if you are a fan of the history of NASA and of space travel, 
This is a must watch film. Um, if I can find it for free somewhere, I'll watch it in a couple of nights, but I can't watch it all together. I just can't. Yeah. Nowadays. Um, it's a, yeah, it's not, it's not a fast paced action film film, but it is a very good film telling the history of our, uh, of the space race and our, our history of our astronauts. And it's, it's very well done. And like I said, incredibly well acted. Lacey, have you seen the right stuff? Yeah, and I'm going to kind of mirror what Kyle said. I mean, it's one of those things where if you're really interested in, in this subject, it's a great kind of in-depth wa- look at some of the more um, personal aspects of their lives. Um, you know, Grissom had some serious, like, you know, um, fallout. Uh, there's some, he was blamed for some things and kept, you know, for the longest time, he was just like, no, that's not true. You know, uh, there's a lot of kind of, stuff going on with that but i think if you're interested on a on a more like even level like where you're just kind of like oh that sounds neat there are other there are other films that portray the nasa of it all with a little bit more um such such as yeah uh well i mean apollo 13 or yeah, right. there's a million there's a million other shit yeah, I've seen other apollo 13. i liked apollo 13 where you'll, you can get yeah. some some good you know astronaut action and some and also like you know let's face it it wasn't until like the mid 90s where you know film productions would actually bring on you know Experts, yeah, yeah, yeah. To tell them what was going on before that. It was like, well, if we just glaze over this, people won't people won't notice because the you know they thought the public was stupid, right? Um, so I think that this is a good movie if you're like super into astronauts, like if you're super into the space race and all this kind of stuff, then it's a great film to watch. If you're like a little bit more interested in kind of the action of it all, there are other movies that you could watch. I, Did I you just guys read this out out too real, real quick. Ed Harris completing the circle, playing John Glenn in this film, but then going on to in Apollo 13, being the head of mission control. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. All right. I, I'll think about it. Uh, if I see it on DVD, I'll pick it up. So there you go. All right, guys, the next film we have is under fire, uh, just made under $6 million in its theatrical run starring Nick Nolte, Gene Hackman and Joanna Cassidy. Three journalists in a romantic triangle are involved in a political intrigue during the last days of the corrupt Somoza regime in Nicaragua before it falls to a popular revolution in 1979, directed by Roger Spottiswood, um, also co-starring Ed Harris. Um, And uh, I was able to find this free streaming somewhere. I can't remember if it was Tubi or something, but I did find it and I was able to watch this. Kyle, trivia on Under Fire. This movie was made and released about four years after the events of the Nicaraguan revolution depicted in the film occurred in 1979. American reporter Bill Stewart was killed by Nicaraguan soldiers at the time. This film was part of a cycle of pictures made during the 1980s that featured journalists covering war. Many of those movies include Salvador, Under Fire, Circle of Deceit, Witness in the War Zone, Cry Freedom, The Killing Fields, and The Year of Living Dangerously. Um, Jerry Goldsmith's entire End title music for this film is used to score a sequence in uh, Django Unchained. Right. 2012 film. Uh, this was an interesting film, guys. I like the love uh, triangle that was going on here. Uh, I, I wouldn't say it was a rewatchable film. Of course, one of the characters in the film does die. Of course, uh, it is dramatic. And, uh, you know, you know, I remember seeing a lot of news about this when I was a kid. And it just... 
it's a time and era that I just normally don't like to visit. I, I don't know what it is about the whole Nicaraguan thing. Cause it was all over time magazine, all over the news. It was depressing. I don't know what it is, but uh, I just, uh, you know, I'm one and done with this film. It was okay. Uh, Kyle, have you seen under under fire? I have, I actually think it's one of a, one of the more underrated Nick Nolte performances out there. Um, but I, when I ref, when I was refreshing myself a little bit on some of the films and we watched the trailer, I'm watching this young Nick Nolte the whole time and thinking, God, if they ever remade this film, Chris Hemsworth has to play this role. <laughs> I was just wondering if Nick Nolte was thinking Joanna Cassidy was a replicant. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> uh, Lacey, have you seen Under Fire? Yeah, I saw it. I saw it a million years ago. I think The Year of Living Dangerously was um, basically the same thing and yeah. superior. Yep. And I think that yep. if out of all out of the list that Kyle read, I think the only one that I would ever rewatch, and it's likely that I won't rewatch it, would be The Year of Living Dangerously. Um, if you want to watch something that's a little bit more updated, but still the same uh, feel, <clears throat> The Bang Bang Club was in uh, like 2010. Same situation, reporters in the war, photograph. It's, it's the question of like, do yeah. you get involved to I, help rescue people? I, I think a more updated version uh, was uh, Blood Diamond too with Diamond Hensu and uh, okay. Leonardo DiCaprio. Mm-hmm. What year was that? It has, uh, God, 10 years ago, I think. Is it 10 Probably years ago? now. Might be closer to yeah. 15 now. Yeah, yeah so this is about yeah. the same time. The Bang Bang Club yeah. is 2010 was Taylor uh, Kitsch and. Um, the Bang Bang Club was who? Uh, Taylor Kitsch and. Um, okay. I want to say Ryan Phillippe, but I think that's wrong. I'm actually looking it up because I'm curious to see who is in the, the Bang Bang Club. 2010. Yeah, Ryan Malin Ackerman. Okay. Yep. Uh, yeah. Okay. Drama based uh, capturing the final days of apartheid. Oh, it in was South Ryan Philippe. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. So under fire. There you go. All right. Next, we have a comedy called Going Berserk. Uh, only made just over $234,000 in the theater. Uh, the good, the bad, and the stupid is on the poster here. Uh, you've seen them before. Now see them going berserk. Uh, starring John Candy, Joey Flattery, and Eugene Levy. A clumsy chauffeur is hypnotized by a cult to kill the father of his fiance, a congressman who's suing the cult for fraud and encounters several weird characters during the days leading up to his wedding, directed by David Steinberg. Um, Kyle, you have some trivia on Going Berserk? Yes, I have some trivia. And then when I'm doing the trivia, I've got a question specifically for you, Kevin. So, Yes. First top build role in a major Hollywood comedy for actor-comedian John Candy. John Candy was supposed to write the script but never finished it. One of the film's taglines is you've seen them before and now see them going berserk. The directors, writers, and principal cast were all alumni of the Canadian sketch comedy improv TV troupe Second City TV, whose work is anthologized in SCTV Network 1981. Um, the picture is considered to be SCTV's movie debut. John, Interesting note here is John Candy was originally offered the role of Lewis in Ghostbusters but turned it down. He was, however... He was, however, worked with all primary cast members of Ghostbusters, including Bill Murray and Harold Ramis in Stripes, Dan Aykroyd in several films, Annie Potts in Who's Harry Crumb, and Ernie Hudson in this. He also made an appearance in the Ghostbusters music video. Now, Kevin, I have a question for you, because I know you're a big SNL guy. But were we at a time right here where 
Second City TV was definitely cramping on SNL style just a little bit here. They were kind of starting to get at least nudge them in the ribs a bit. Yeah, SCTV, uh, these guys are all alumni as well, which is kind of like the uh, Canadian version of SNL. Um, yeah, I definitely. And but, but there was a lot of great comedy talent that came out of Second City and, and stuff. And and these guys have all gone on to do much better roles. And I was having trouble finding this film. And then I realized I had this John Candy three-pack here, Uncle Buck, The Great Outdoors, and Going Berserk. I was like, cool, all right. And uh, I ended up watching Going Berserk on DVD. Uh, guys, this movie's bad. Yeah. <laughs> I still, I, I was, okay, I read the IMDb plot synopsis there. Maybe that stuff happened. It was just, to me, it felt like a bunch of skits put together. It just felt like a bunch of friends from uh, SCTV and um, uh, Second City that just got together just wanting to be in a film, you know, and, and, you know, whatever. Lacey? Okay, this is like, I feel like it's like David Lynch trying to direct the Manchurian Candidate using only dick and fart jokes. (laughs) (laughs) Am I wrong? The, the queen of movie foo, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, it really <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> like the whole time, I'm like, what on? Why would? Okay. Oh my god. What? Oh my god. No. Oh my god. Okay. This is so funny. It was just. Yeah. What? Yeah. And then no, and then really, and then what? And and I gotta tell you, if if John Candy was any more grab ass in this film. Like he literally like every time you turn around, like somebody's you know like the poor actresses in this movie. Goodness yeah. gracious! <laughs> yeah, this this movie I just didn't find it funny either. Kyle, did you see oh. this movie? I saw this movie. This is this is one of those movies where I, I saw it, but I don't really remember much of it. We would, when I was living in Alaska at the time, especially in the middle of winter, it would be okay. We're taking somebody's parents would go away for a weekend or something like that, or we'd have a sleepover at a person's house and we just go all rent like the craziest movies we could find from blockbuster and i remember this being in the stack one time and it i just yeah and we i think we didn't even finish it because it was like okay guys we're feeling the brain cells die <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah definitely uh worth a skip there so yeah. all right guys uh next we have the wicked lady um made over $650,000 in a theatrical one. The poster says she's wild, she's wicked, and she really knows how to whip up a good time. The wicked lady, Caroline, is to be wed to Sir Ralph Ralph, and invites her sister Barbara to be her bridesmaid. Barbara seduces Ralph, however, and she becomes the new lady, but despite her new wealthy situation, she gets bored and turns to highway robbery for thrills. While on the road, she meets a famous highwayman, and they continue as a team. But some people begin suspecting her identity, and she risks death if she continues her nefarious activities. Directed by Michael Winner, stars Faye Dunaway, Alan Bates, John Gilgood, and Denim Elliott. Kyle, trivia on The Wicked Lady. Career choices, ladies and gentlemen. Faye Dunaway turned down a role in Reagan in a of Reagan in a British television production of King Lear starring Sir Lawrence Olivier to be in this movie. Career choices, ladies and gentlemen. Is that a good thing or a bad thing, Kyle? What are you alluding to here? (laughs) (laughs) This movie is based on the true story of highway woman, Lady Catherine 
Ferez. The, the wicked lady lived at the Markate Cell Manor in the village of Markate, which was near Hemel Hempstead in Hedfordshire. Hedfordshire. That's name, in the UK, people. That's yeah. in the UK. Yep. The name Lady Catherine Ferrers was changed to Barbara Skelton for the novel written by Magdalene King Hall. This book was adapted for this movie and The Wicked Lady. This in movie is notable for a whip fight between two women, which was not in the original novel, but was already in The Wicked Lady from 1945. The scene caused a controversy as the British Board of Film Classification wanted to impose a cut, and director Michael Winner refused to cut the notorious sequence, lobbying with such fellow director colleagues as Lindsay Anderson, Carl Riaz, and John Schlesinger, as well as known author, author Kingsley Ames, Amos to defend the retention of the scene. The scene stayed, but the movie's release was delayed. Kevin, I just want to say, this movie is a perfect reflection of a certain type of film that was produced during this time frame, the wacky adventure time period piece. So the swashbuckling uh, things yeah. that were happening. And there's a, there's another movie that's coming up that hits that tone. Uh, so I remember reading this trivia about the famous whip scene. And uh, I actually enjoyed this movie. It is streaming for free. I forget where I'm sorry, guys. Uh, it's hard to, it's hard to remember where everything's streaming, but I did find it for free. I was able to watch it. I actually kind of enjoyed it because I liked the concept that there was this lady back in the, was it 17 or 1800s that was rich and prim and proper and was bored and uh, knew the right paths to steal her fellow uh, rich ladies and men's uh, stuff and then, you know, take off. And so, and this whip scene at the end, it's kind of brutal. <laughs> <laughs> these two ladies are whipping the shit out of each other on this scene and they're getting, you see like blood on them and stuff. And it, it was interesting, but uh, I, I actually ended up kind of enjoying the film. Uh, Lacey, have you seen the wicked lady? I think I have. I want to say that I'm, I might be mixing it up with the highwayman starring Hugh Grant. Cause it's basically the same story. It's just a dude instead of her. And yeah. I, but I know I've seen, I know I've seen both of them. I just don't, I feel like I might be mixing the scenes up a little bit because a lot of the it's a lot of the same kind of stuff. Gotcha, gotcha. What about you, Kyle? You do remember seeing this? I remember seeing this, and again, this is kind of one of those things that you find it on cable or something like that, and you end up, and you end up watching it. But like I said, this this is just one of the the epitome of that swashbuckling, not great film, but they're you can tell they're just trying to have fun while they're making it, and the fact that they got Faye Dunaway for this film is pretty amazing. <laughs> You know, I'll be I'll be honest with you guys. I think this movie. Okay, so the original one came out in 1945. I actually would like to see an updated version of this. I think oh, it would I think be really, really fun. Um, yeah. You know, I and it, like the costumes in this film were fantastic. And like lately, uh, I've been watching the new season that just came out of uh, the Gilded Age. Their costumes are fantastic. I just mm-hmm. like this time era. And I think that it would be a lot of fun if they revisited this story. I can even. I already have a casting for you, Kevin. Okay. Tell me who's you, who are you casting, Kyle? Anne Hathaway. Ooh, that's a good one. I was kind of going maybe Kira Knightley. That's where I was kind of going with it. Or 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 hold on. Mm-mm, I know. Oh no. Um, Emily Blunt. She would be good too. She would be good too. Yeah, it's but got. Anne, I, I think Anne Hathaway would bring the fun to it as well. Yeah, it's true. Um. I'm thinking Ana de Armas. 
Oh, I like that. I like that. That's good. But she's getting ready to do the ballerina, the John Wick thing. So maybe she yeah. might be like a little bit too into the to the the action stuff. I don't know. That, that would be my one fear is that they would turn this into a a heavy action John Wick type of thing when it yeah. really shouldn't be. Yeah. Yeah. All um, right, guys. Let's head into November of 1983. All right. The next film we've got came out in November. Deal of the Century. Comedy just made over $10 million in its theatrical run. The poster says Deal of the Century. Chevy Chase and his partners are arms dealers. They sell second-rate weapons to third-world nations, but they're not out to stick it to anyone. Uh, starring Chevy Chase, Sigourney Weaver, and Gregory Hines. A William Freakin, uh, Freakin film, guys. William Freakin. Um, as I said, a small-time arms dealer in South America to sell weapons to the revolutionaries winds up negotiating the sale of an experimental plane to the nation's dictator. Uh, as I mentioned, Chevy Chase, Sigourney Weaver, and Gregory Hines are the stars. Kyle, you have some trivia on A Deal of the Century. One of only two films director William Friedkin wrote Nothing about positive or negative in his memoir, The Freaking Connection. One of the two films that he writer-director Paul Brickman wrote that was released by Warner Brothers in 1983. The other was the mega-hit Risky Business starring Tom Cruise, which was released during the summer around the same time as Chevy Chase's National Lampoon's Vacation, which was also released by the studio and was also a success. The name comes from a bribery scandal involving Lockheed and Japanese officials in 1972. All right. I was able to find this free streaming somewhere. It's out there. <laughs> you can find it. I was kind of, uh, I'd never heard of this film before guys, before I started doing the research for this podcast for 1983. I'm like, this is interesting. Chevy Chase, Sigourney Weaver and Gregory Hines in a comedy about arms dealing. Fascinating. Movie was okay. It had its moments. I thought, well, Chevy Chase was Chevy Chase. Seeing him try to peddle weapons was funny. Uh, but then it kind of leads into this, like, you know, this smart plane and someone trying to take it over and possibly start World War III, if I remember correctly, because, you know, that was obviously a theme here in the in the early 80s. Uh, I, I don't know. I recommend seeing it at least once because it has its moments. Uh, yeah, but, you know, I... I'm fine going to my deathbed, never having seen it again. Uh, Kyle, have you seen Deal of the Century? I have. And what I like about Deal of the Century, it's not a great film by any means. And I agree with you there. But I, I like Chevy Chase in this because it's before he gets really typecast as Chevy Chase. And he takes some risks and he does some stuff that normally he wouldn't do per se. And especially because after this vacation, vacation hits around the same time as this. And then he kind of gets into that car. Clark Griswold mode in a lot of things. He's doing a little something different here and taking some chances. And it, it's actually what it's, I like Chevy Chase when he's doing that and not just play, playing the type cast that he right. kind of did right. after vacation. Lacey, have you seen Deal of the Century? I have. I will say that this is one of those movies that does not stand up over time in the current <laughs> climate. There's there are a couple scenes where like arms dealing is seen as like a swap meet, and yeah. every single person in this scene was a stereotype of a bad guy from a different country. And it's That's just true. Not something you wouldn't be able to make that movie today. The, the same way it's rude and it's very, it's just not okay. <laughs> My um, favorite arms dealing movie, by the way, is Lord of war with Nicholas cage. 
That was a good one. Oh, right on. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, so I think that that just being said at the beginning, I, I, yes, I agree that it's something that you can, you can watch once or twice cause he's funny. Like yeah. they're all funny. It's a good, it's a good fun movie, but you have to understand that there might be some things that you're not okay with <laughs> if you're, you know, <laughs> yeah. of a certain age. Um, I will say that I agree with Kyle. Uh, this, his, his attitude in this feels a little bit more Fletch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's kind definitely. of like a little precursor to Fletch, kind of that feel. Uh, this was right before Fletch, right? I believe so. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, a, that's the thing with Chevy Chase. It all kind of hit at once. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this did this is this the one that had Eddie Murphy his uh like a like a cameo of him like popping out of the of the the tank? Mm, I no. don't remember that. I don't yeah, know. I, I feel like so there's either. a movie that where uh, he he's an is an un, unnamed cameo. He's not a he's uncredited, but that was a, I think that's a Dan Aykroyd movie you're thinking of. Maybe yeah. I, I feel yeah. like this might be it, but yeah. who knows? No. All right, yeah. all right, guys. So um, 1983 is famous for. A few things. As we mentioned in previous podcasts, 83, it was the year of the sex comedies. But it was also the year of we're going to die in a nuclear holocaust. (laughs) Or the threat of nuclear war. All of that was coming out, guys. And we all know of one film about what happens when there's a nuclear holocaust. But there was another one that went underneath the radar. And that is called Testament. And it made just over... It it was a made-for-TV movie, but it went to the theater just like another one that we're going to talk about that's coming up and the poster's pretty bland it just says testament at the bottom and at the top with no imagery behind it it says they never had a chance to see their children grow up to watch each other grow old to fix up the house to take the vacation because it only took an instant to shatter their dreams testament and the plot goes The life of a suburban American family is scarred after a nuclear attack. Nuclear war in the United States is portrayed in a realistic and believable manner. The story is told through the eyes of a woman who is struggling to take care of her family. The entire movie takes place in a small suburban town outside of San Francisco. After the nuclear attack, contact with the outside world is pretty much cut off. Directed by Lynn Littman, stars Jane Alexander, William Devane, and Rosie Harris. Kyle, you got some interesting trivia on Testament. And Lucas Haas was in it. Correct. Yeah, that That's in the trivia. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Kevin. Kevin Costner has said that this was a film he has never forgotten. This film was, this film and the powerful influence it had on him. Costner would later star during in the 1990s in such post-apocalyptic movies as Waterworld and The Postman. Now, just to, I just want to clarify, Kevin Costner's in this film, but he's not a lead star, so that's why yeah. that trivia is in there. <laughs> yeah, but but it you know now we know the birthplace of Waterworld. Yes. So, um, the film the film was originally shot as a made for TV movie. Paramount executives were so impressed with it that they released it in theaters as a feature. The cast sued the producers for higher pay, claiming they were paid television salaries and not feature film salaries. The case was settled out of court. As Lacey mentioned, this the film debut of Lucas Haas. Cast and crew reunited about 20 years after this picture was made to film the making of documentary of the movie entitled Testament at 20. It is available on the DVD. 
One of two 1983 films about nuclear warfare and atomic bombs that were originally made for television, but garnered the theatrical release in select territories. We will get to the other one here shortly. So, guys, I never heard of this film. I don't remember it back in the day in 83 because I remember the other film we're going to be discussing shortly. Uh, I found this streaming for free online and I watched it. Uh, It is a very interesting drama very realistic if you're living on a town outside of a major city that got bombed. Uh, interesting. Uh, what was really interesting was the panic that started to set in and the people that are in the church, you know, trying to figure out what to do. And, and you know, uh, it, it was interesting to, to kind of get a different take on it. Um, and, you know, but it was a tough watch, a little boring, but it was very interesting to see. I will probably never revisit it. Kyle, do you remember Testament? I do not. I actually didn't. Until we did this podcast, I did not know this movie existed. So Yeah. Me neither. Um, yeah. Lacey? Yeah. Did you just watch it, Kevin? I watched it about um, two months ago. Okay. Is this the one where the mom is sitting in the dark and the flashlight's going out and she's trying to get the batteries and flashlight and, the, and she's trying to feed her son who's sick like water out of a bottle cap? That sounds right. Sounds about right. Yeah. 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 This is the movie that's haunted me since I was like 10 years old. Like I remember vaguely seeing this movie and I had nightmares for, I don't know, a decade. Yeah. Um, so this is the one I've never known the name of it until right now. I find it is an interesting choice for the poster that there's nothing on the poster except the name Testament at the bottom. And then that, um, that stuff that I read earlier. That's the only thing that's on this poster. But it that's looks it. like it looks like TV static. Like, you know, when the TV goes dead. Yeah. 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 That's, that's what happened in the movie was like the reporters were all saying like, there's been bomb blasts in the East coast. And then the TV yep. goes dead. And it's just this, this, it's not even the static. It's that gray kind of gradient. I, yeah. I will give it props for realistic on, you know, how people are trying to deal being cut off from the rest of the world. That's being mm. destroyed. Uh, it, it is an interesting take. And uh, uh, I will say, I, I think it's definitely worth a watch, but I, you know, I'm not going to watch it again. It's a, you know, so. Yeah. All right, guys. The next film, Star 80, made just under $7 million in its theatrical run. A successful young model finds trouble when her obsessive manager turned husband becomes dangerously jealous. Director Bob Fosse stars Mariel Hemingway, Eric Roberts and Cliff Robertson as Hugh Hefner, of course, famously known based on the terrible story of what happened to Dorothy Stratton. Kyle, you've got some uh, trivia for us. The Virgin Film Guide states that actress, actress Mariel Hemingway underwent breast augmentation for the role of playing Dorothy Stratton. Hemingway received breast implants shortly before playing the part of Playboy model actress Stratton, but has allegedly denied that she was that was the reason she got them. Hemingway's silicone breast implants were removed years later after they had ruptured, leaking silicone into her bloodstream. Aaron Nichols is a fictionalized version of film director Peter Bogdanovich. Bogdanovich was dating Dorothy Stratton around the time that they collaborated on They All Laugh. In this film, the title of the collaboration was changed to Tinsel Time. This was due to Bogdanovich threatening to sue if he was unhappy with how he was portrayed. Hugh Hefner said that Eric Roberts' portrayal of Paul Snyder was right on the money. However, William Sachs, who directed Dorothy Stratton in the sci-fi comedy Galaxina, 
claims that it was an inaccurate portrayal and that Snyder would rarely ever talk to anyone who wasn't Dorothy and would just look at others with a creepy death stare. Playboy magazine, Magnot, Hugh Hefner sued the producers after the film was released because he did not like how he was portrayed in the film. It is the debut cinema movie as actors of, of both Roger Reese and Keenan Ivory Wayans. Um, I had seen this movie years ago and I really wasn't familiar with Dorothy Stratton. Um, and uh, this movie, in my opinion, is probably Eric Roberts' breakout role because it's a very sad story uh, about this, you know, pretty girl who was working at a Dairy Queen up in uh, Vancouver. And uh, this guy who's, you know, um, you know, very ambitious, sees her, wants to make something of her and eventually turns her into, you know, doing some nude shots and then, you know, turning them into Playboy. And she, she gets an acting job out of it. She stays at the Playboy Mansion and uh, he becomes abusive and things get bad. And I remember listening to a true crime prod- podcast that talked about all the gruesome details that led up to it. And uh, eventually how she was uh, you know, shot to death and then he ended up killing himself. Uh, it's very, very, it's, 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 I would say Mariel Hemingway was very good as Dorothy Stratton, but Eric Roberts is really good as the, uh, uh, the psycho boyfriend. Uh, Cliff Robertson, I thought he was okay as Hefner. Not bad. But it's interesting, um, uh, this whole story and how it, it landed out. And I just want to mention, guys, there was another movie that was based on this same tragedy. And it was the TV version. So it wasn't as um, graphic as this movie version. And this is Death of a Centerfold starring Jamie Lee Curtis. And I ended up getting this on DVD and watching it. And uh, yeah, you know, it's TV version, but I got to tell you, I thought, I thought, um, I thought Jamie Lee Curtis was actually a better Dorothy Stratton. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> a lot of people did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, back to star 80 though. Uh, definitely um, Eric Roberts breakout role. Cause as bad as he was as a character, he was great acting in this role. Uh, Kyle, have you seen star 80? It's it's been a bit, but this is starting is one of these movies that if you're any kind of movie buff, the name stands out to you. It rings a bell. You've heard about starting and it's partly because of the story, partly because of Eric kind of being Eric Roberts breakout role, but because there's where there's a weird perception after that Mary Mariel Hemingway had after this movie for a while that in Hollywood where people couldn't quite figure her out. And Star 80, I guess because, too, at the time, it was such a, a p- interesting and powerful story because you didn't really get the true stories of that like that that often. And it's But there's just something about Star 80 that it's one of those things. It's like you're just going along. And, oh, Star 80. And so it, it gets the wheels spinning. And it, it just, it's, it's kind of one of those weird movies like that. It's, I'm not going to say it's a great film, but it's just it's one of those movies that just always seems to pop when you see it. Right. Uh, Lacey, have you seen Star 80? I have not. It was obviously about a subject that I would not have seen when I was 10 years old. Um, and when I was old enough to actually watch it, it's a drama, so it wouldn't have even been on my radar. It sounds like a very depressing movie about something that would not <laughs> interest me at all. Um, I feel very bad for whoever, what did you say, Dorothy's Samson? 
Stratton. 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 Yeah. I feel terrible for her. Um, I do not feel terrible for not watching either of those movies. <laughs> you know, it's interesting was uh, I was curious how soon because uh, Death of a Centerfold came out in 81. Dorothy Stratton died in 80. So oh, wow. obviously they were uh, in a hurry to get some type of movie out because it was such a big story. And when I was looking at trivia for Death of a Centerfold, both Dorothy Stratton and Jamie Lee Curtis, who had played uh, who had played here, had guest starred in separate episodes of Buck Rogers in the 25th Century in 1979. No, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, one of the film's producers, Tim King had also starred, uh, also started his television career as an associate producer on two episodes of the sci-fi series. So I thought that was kind of interesting that there was a tie in there, uh, that, but yeah, it's, it's a sad story. Uh, but you know, for true crime uh, fans, this is one of the most popular ones that they cover because it's nothing more is fascinating than watching, uh, something horrific happen to famous people. And definitely, and unfortunately that happened to Dorothy Stratton. So uh, all right, guys. So the next film that we have is Christmas Story, made over twenty million, just over twenty million dollars in its original theatric run. The poster says a tribute to the original, traditional, one hundred percent red-blooded, two-fisted, all-American Christmas. A Christmas Story. In the nineteen forties, a young boy named Ralphie Parker attempts to convince his parents, teacher, and Santa Claus that a Red Rider range two hundred shot BB gun really is the perfect Christmas gift. Director Bob Clark, and of course, starring Peter Billingsley, Melinda Dillon, and Darren McGavin. Kyle, trivia on A Christmas Story. Okay, I'll try not to shoot my eye out while I'm doing this trivia. (laughs) Darren McGavin ad-libbed the profane rants while fighting with the furnace. He said he speaks gibberish the entire time because it was almost impossible for him to ad-lib angry words without actual profanity. He did this in order to ensure a PG rating. For the scene in which Flick's tongue sticks to the flagpole, a hidden suction tube was used to safely create the illusion that his tongue had frozen to the metal. According to Peter Billingsley, young Ralphie, in the DVD commentary, the nonsensical ramblings that Ralphie exclaims while beating up Scott Farkas were scripted word for word. Mm -hmm. In 2005, the 19th century Victorian home used for the exterior shots of the Parker family home was put up for auction on eBay. The Cleveland, Ohio home was purchased for 150000 by an avid fan of the film named Brian Jones. Jones then spent the following year restoring the home to the way it looked on screen. The exterior was completely restored, and the interior was renovated to match the interior of the home shown in the movie. Parts of the interior were actually filmed in a Toronto studio. On November 25, 2006, the home finally opened its doors as a tourist attraction. Jones spent close to half a million dollars in preparation for the grand opening. In addition, he also purchased a house across the street and converted it into a gift shop and museum dedicated to the film and the house. What about the neighbors? What's up with the neighbors? Are they okay with this? <laughs> I just <laughs> um, uh, yeah, Lacey, you yeah. um I actually I have a friend who went up there for like Christmas with his family at one point and uh, at one point, somebody was like, well, why don't we go tour the, the house? We'll do the thing. And they were like, okay, fine. And at the front of the, <laughs> when you first walk in, they actually have an option. If you want to, you can tour the house while wearing a pink bunny costume. <laughs> bunny I costume. would so do that. Yeah. That is the only yeah. way you can get me into a pink They bunny have costume. bunny costumes to rent for like the time that you're inside. And then you can take photographs all around the house, you know, with the bunny costume on. <laughs> 
Um, and he did, of course. Um, and so I have all these, like, he showed me all these pictures. Of, that is so funny. In front of the fireplace and in front of the, you know, next to the rocking chair and all this, like, you know, wearing this pink bunny costume. And then, of course, the one picture of him going, you know, in front of the, the door. So Kyle, you and I have discussed this movie on uh, culture clash about Christmas movies and such like this. Uh-huh. And, um, I think you and I are in a similar situation. I, it, this movie runs 24 seven, like for 48 hours during Christmas time or even longer than that now. Yeah. Um, and so you can jump in anytime on TBS or whatever it is. It's showing it. And it, it wasn't always like that when I was a kid, it would come on maybe once like maybe twice, prime yeah, time. Once or twice. yeah. Yeah. Once or twice. And it was a tradition of watching this movie every Christmas uh, and, you know, Christmas Eve. And I always enjoyed that uh, when I was a kid and we watched it as a family. However, as I started getting older, I'll be honest with you. I started getting sick of this film. I, I, I <laughs> a lot of it has to do with a lot of other Christmas films that I enjoy watching more over the years and uh, I liked. I, I can't keep up with my Hallmark Christmas films, but I try. I try to dip in there and watch them because I like them. Uh, so I just don't have time for a Christmas story anymore. Uh, it's it's for the next generation. Uh, I still have it. If it's on, I might watch a few minutes of it. But I I don't know. I'm just kind of done with watching a Christmas story as a tradition. Kyle, I think you have the same feeling I do. If I remember correctly, when we did a, a podcast about that. If my mom ever hears or sees this video podcast, I might actually be kicked out of my parents' house for Christmas because <laughs> the Christmas story is her one of her all-time favorite Christmas films. My problem with the Christmas story is this. It is a classic Christmas film without any question. I won't argue that point. Anything. But we have over-marketed it, oversaturated it, and we have taken the magic from this movie. Between Excellent concept- point, Kyle. Excellent point. Between the constant playing of this film, all of the marketing from the the lamp you can buy, the Funko Pops, 18 million other things about A Christmas Story. I am sick of this film because it's been shoved down. I feel like it's been shoved down my throat when there are so many other good Christmas films out there as well that don't get anywhere near the attention as this film. Um, in fact, we mentioned one earlier with Dudley Moore, Santa Claus, the movie. I'm a fan of that movie. And then John Lithgow is a great villain in that movie as well. So, but again, I will not argue the classic part of this. I will not argue its place in pop culture. I will argue we need to expand our Christmas horizons (laughs) when it comes to Christmas movies. Lacey, your thought on a Christmas story. I never found the magic to it in the first place. Um, it's, like sad nothing goes right the kid is bored the whole time or he's like anxious for something that he doesn't get like everything is just a bummer like the movie itself is just a bummer like it was everything that happened in the movie was just like he's either getting in trouble or he's waiting on something he's so i was so happy when i saw that peter billingsley had like made it past like child direct you know child um actor and made it in you know he's a cinematographer now he's John Favreau's like right hand. He does all yeah. of the, the shot, you know, the, the hand, the camera for all of his movies. He's been in, he's in the Marvel universe uh, as, you know, uh, one of the Stark employees. He was in, uh, yeah. uh, he was one of what's his name's uh, henchmen when they messed up Spider-Man, all that kind of great, happy for him. So excited that he like switched up and got something going. And that was all. And then I saw a couple years ago that they were doing the sequel that just came out. 
Yeah. You know, like, I, I I tried to watch it and I just couldn't yeah. finish that. But I, real quick, rapid fire. Favorite Christmas movie. Go, Lacey. Me? Oh. Yes. Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. Kyle? Sorry, do you mean like, do you mean? Like, I mean traditional Christmas, traditional Christmas movie. Scrooge with Albert Finney. Ooh, good one. Good one. Watch it. I watch it every year. All right. Kyle, right can't say Die Hard. Bang, bang. Sorry. Right after Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. <laughs> there, there's the modern classic, which is Scrooge, Bill Murray. Yeah. And the Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life. All right. Yeah. Yep. You, uh, Kevin? Same. Scrooge. And then It's a Wonderful Life. There you go. Yep. Okay. All right. Next, guys, we've got Nate and Hayes. Just made over six, uh, a million six hundred thousand in the uh, theater, and uh, this is uh, it was a vintage year for slave mongers, do-gooders, murderers, and bully Hayes, Nate and Hayes, a swashbuckling adventure which takes place in the mid eighteen hundreds on a South Pacific islands where bloody raids and battles were once the rule of the day. Directed by Ferdinand Fairfax, starring Tommy Lee Jones, Michael O'Keefe. And Max Phipps. Kyle, give us some trivia. What is Nate and Hayes about? Well, I'm glad you have trivia because I've never seen this movie or heard of this film. But Captain Billy Bully Hayes was in real life a sh ship captain called William Henry Bully Hayes who sailed in the South Pacific Seas during the mid-19th century until he was murdered in 1877. In real life, Captain William Henry Hayes, a.k.a. Bully Hayes, was born around 1827 to 1829 and lived until 1877 when he was aged around 48 to 50. Hayes has inaccurately been described by some writers as the last of the Buccaneers. Are you sure that Laserdisc didn't come out around the same time he lived, Kevin? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I first heard about this film, guys. Uh, with our friends at Action Film Face-Off, where they uh, take a random two years. One guy picks a random action film from one year, and then the other guy picks a uh, random action from another, and they have them duel, and they have categories. Best, you know, the villain, uh, the hero, uh, the theatrical, the, the experience, or whatever it is, the story, and, and then they uh, uh, rate, rank them from one to ten. And then they have a guest on who's the sniper who gets to add one extra point to each one of these things. And Nathan Hayes was one of them. And I had never heard of it. And so I ended up listening to the podcast. So I got kind of spoiled on it, but I found it on Laserdisc because it's hard to find guys. <laughs> I don't know if you know this or not, but it's it is actually streaming somewhere for free. I can't remember where, but I did find it. Uh, and Tommy Lee Jones as, as this bully guy, uh, it was actually kind of a fun film, had great location shoots, great swashbuckling adventure, and uh, it was kind of fun. Just going to say. Kevin, I got to hit up this one piece of trivia that you have in here, though, because just, 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 just the list. This picture was part of a cycle of films in the Indiana Jones Saturday afternoon matinee adventure mold that were made after the box office success of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. These movies included Sky Pirates in 1986, Jake Speed in 86, King Solomon's Mine in 85, Alan Quartermain and the Lost City of Gold, 1986, River of Death, 1989, High Road to China, 1983, Romancing the Stone, 84, The Jewel of the Nile, 85, Savage Islands, 1983, Motherlode, 1982, 
Treasure of the Four Crowns, 1983, a.k.a. Treasure of the Four Crowns, The Hunter of the Golden Cobra, 1982, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and, of course, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Kevin, Kevin, this just sounds like a week of just movie heaven for you. <laughs> <laughs> the River of Death, that's actually with uh, Michael Dudikoff, and I actually bought that DVD in Australia, but I haven't watched it yet. Uh, High Road to China, we've we, we've talked about. Uh, uh, then we have Romancing. I've seen several of these. I remember seeing Jake Speed. I can't remember it. I've seen uh, Alan Quartermain and King Solomon's Mines. Uh, just basically Indiana Jones ripoffs, but still enjoyed them. Yeah, yeah, definitely a time of of uh, of these swashbuckling films. Lacey, have you seen Nathan Hayes? Yes, I would watch Tommy Lee Jones read a phone book. Just saying. <laughs> I legit, I, I mean, I'd seen this a while back. I, I, you know, when I just, when I started really getting into my collecting, I, I started pulling all my favorite actors and going on IMDb and kind of going back and seeing what I got. Um, I couldn't find the DVD for a million years. And then when it came up on this list, I was like, oh, wow. You know, I haven't heard about, I haven't thought about that in so long. It's going for 11 bucks on Amazon right now. You can buy the DVD. Oh, you can. Okay, cool. Yes. So oh. I just got it. And I'm very excited. It's going to be exciting. I'm very excited to see it again, to see if it holds up. Because in my brain... I was going to say, I, I could ship a laser disc player in my laser disc <laughs> if you need to watch You're it. You're so sweet. Uh, but no, <laughs> it, it's it's one of those ones where I remember it being so good and like so and just so fun. And I will say that list is incomplete. They forgot Firewalker with Chuck uh, yes. and Lewis Gossett Jr. That was also, that was another one of my like... Super Very big. swashbuckly, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, an, like, an, an underrated movie. movie. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I dug it, but I can't. Okay. I can't like until I watch it again. I, I will be watching it as soon as it comes in the mail. Okay. So we well, I want an update it. on uh, the next episode, which will be the last one because we're going to cover uh, eighty-three Absolutely. December, and we're going to talk about the awards, who won what acting awards, and, and stuff like Got that. It. So yeah. Cool. All right, guys, the next film I just literally watched the other night because I had to uh, I had trouble finding it for free and I found it on YouTube. And that is a night in heaven uh, just made over five million five hundred thousand dollars in its theatrical run. And the poster says in class, he's just another face in the crowd in heaven, the hottest dance club in town. He's the main attraction, a night in heaven. A married college professor begins a torrid affair with her failing student who secretly moonlights as a late night strip club dancer. Directed by John G. Abelson, stars Christopher Atkins, Leslie Ann Warren, and Robert Logan. Kyle, what trivia do you have for us? I, I can't do trivia until somebody proves to me, as a matter of fact, that Susan. Sarandon and Leslie Ann Warren aren't the same person in the 19th. <laughs> <laughs> there are similarities. Yes. I got to every time I was getting ready to watch a movie, I'd be like, Oh no, it's the one with Susan. No, wait, Leslie, no, it's too, no. I, I, I need, I need picture proof of them in the same spot together before I'm, but before I'll believe otherwise. It's like but. Jessica Chastain and Bryce Dallas Howard. If they're not sitting next to each other, I automatically choose the wrong name. I can tell them apart, but these two, I mean, Clue for a long time, I was like, oh yeah, Susan Sarandon isn't in Clue, that's Leslie Ann Warren, but um, some trivia. This film has a huge gay following because of the male audience 
because of Christopher Atkins' seductive strip tease and because Atkins, who forgot to wear underwear in the hotel scene with Leslie Ann Warren, wound up being naked in one scene. However, most of the critics, as well as the audience, were hostile to this film. Um, this film is listed among the 100 most amusingly bad movies ever made in Golden Raspberry Award founders John Wilson's book, The Official Razzie Movie Guide. The song Heaven by Brian Adams appears on the soundtrack of this film before the release of his album Reckless a year later. As the third single from the playlist, Adams insisted that the song was to be included when Reckless was released when his producer deemed the song as a power ballad, which was not deemed as hard rock. The power ballad later paid off when Adams performed the theme song for the film Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. It was recorded on June 6th and 7th, 1983 at the Power Station in New York City. In April 1985, the song reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100. This film here, I was talking to my wife, Erin, about this, seeing she had seen it. She had not because it, it had dancing in it. Usually, Erin likes to watch movies with dancing in it. Uh, I finally found it on YouTube. was able to watch it for free. Uh, the song Heaven by Brian Adams, I think it's played 4,000 times in this, in this movie. <laughs> I'm exaggerating, of course, but it feels like you hear it more than once. Um, it was like it was like the cue that they used for when someone was about to get busy. Yes, yes, and, and they got busy a lot in this movie. Yeah, and, and other things. So now, the, I kept flashbacking to a another version of this film that came out or a scene in this film because Leslie Ann Warren is obviously the teacher and he's failing her classes. She goes out to uh, uh, I don't know if it was a bachelor party or whatever it was, but she goes out to this this male strip club with her friend. And then sees her student getting ready to strip naked. And he sees her and there's that uncomfortable look at each other. And this is probably the best scene in the whole film, to be honest It's in with the you. trailer. <laughs> yes. So they're looking, at, they're looking at each other, right? And then like, he's like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and just continue this show. And it totally reminded me of, and maybe someone thought of it in that scene in... <laughs> Varsity Blues, when they go to the strip club and see mm -hmm. their teacher <laughs> stripping. <laughs> uh, this movie wasn't great, guys. It was interesting. And of course, you know, there's some it actually almost got nasty at the end when her husband finds out and like threatens him with the gun and asks him to strip naked and then like get into the boat. And, you know, he thinks he's going to be shot to death and leaving in there. But instead, he uh, decides to you know, make him strip naked and push him out into the water, like completely naked, which was kind of funny. Uh, you know, it, it was interesting. That moment in the strip scene was probably the most entertaining scene. Um, Kyle, what you, I'm assuming you didn't see the film. You just saw the trailer. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I have questions. Um, <laughs> Chris, Christopher Atkins, really that attractive. Um, At that point, he had just done uh, Blue Lagoon. He had just done... I think he, wait, he might be just getting ready to do, uh, oh, what was the one with, about the gigolo? Um, and then right after that was the pirate movie where he was mostly not clothed again. So which, we, we, which we've already covered, which was right, covered right. Pirate, so there's, yeah. there's kind of like this series of him being, you know, half, half clad, <laughs> not, not, you know, not all altogether dressed being, you know, a kind of a beefcake, if you will, of the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, um, uh, Lacey, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, I'm sorry, Kyle, were you done? I was just going to say, and yet again, an 80s movie done much better in modern modern times with when A Night in Heaven turned into Magic Mike. 
Yes, pretty much. <laughs> Lacey, uh, your thoughts on Night in Heaven? I will say that when I saw Back to School, I had that re- like kind of memory because one of the kids is a, is a stripper, the one that keeps falling asleep in class is a stripper. And I was like, <laughs> like, you know, like a night in heaven. Um, I remember seeing, uh, like in like the movie, movie magazine, uh, there was like a list of the, the top 10 steamiest, whatever. And the shower sex scene in this was supposed to be like the steamiest thing ever. And I was like, huh? Okay. Uh, I didn't, I, I didn't remember it really at the time. I was like, okay, well, whatever. Yeah. I, I mean, they, yeah, when they finally hook up, it's interesting. It's fun to watch. But I think the mm-hmm. the scenes in the in the uh, um, the strip club were probably the most entertaining. But uh, and it was kind of uh, just because there's that like weird kind of almost comical because Leslie Ann Warren, we love her. I do, I do. Some of her facial expressions um, are almost clue esque, if you will. Yeah, you know, like from her. Yeah, and so. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a movie worth watching once, but you can't really find it. I mean, you said you found it for free. I looked it up a while ago. Cause I was, cause I had it on VHS for a long time. Okay. Uh, now if you want yeah, it, I, it's like I, 80 bucks. I found a version on YouTube as a watch, but it was not, um, it was not a good copy of it. Like it was Got like it. a fourth generation VHS transfer. Kyle. Gotcha. Um, I just, I, I feel the need before we move on to any films to put out a warning to all of our wonderful listeners of the fandom podcast network. Um, if you are currently driving and listening to Time Warp, first of all, thank you so much for listening. Please be aware that the, the next five to ten minutes of Time Warp could be sleep-inducing, and we do not want you to drive while while feeling sleepy. So please pause, pick when you get home, and you're in a comfortable place. Pick up this next few movies on Time Warp. Okay, Kyle, you're reading my brain here because the next two films I have not seen. And one was accidentally playing in the background when I had uh, some HBO cable network thing going on. I'm like, oh, that's that movie. And that movie was Yentl. (laughs) Musical made over just over $39 million in its theatrical run. And of course, uh, the poster says nothing's impossible. In a time when the world of study belonged only to men there lived a girl who dared to ask why barbara streisand in yentl a film with music yes that's what the poster says directed by and produced by barbara streisand eastern europe 1904 a jewish woman yentl has the thirst for knowledge but is prohibited from learning due to the restrictions of her religion when her father dies she sets off to increase her knowledge posing as a man in order to gain admission to a Jewish religious school. Also starring Amy Irving and Mandy Patinkin. Kyle, I know you have some trivia on Yentl. Okay, first and foremost, though, I, I must say that as a sign of the sleepiness of this, my cat just crawled up in front of me and fell asleep. So, <laughs> um, Barbara Streisand handpicked Mandy Patinkin for this movie, and he politely declined several times because he did not like the script. Poor man, Mandy. He was eventually invited to Streisand's house where they could discuss the parts he wanted to change, and he then agreed to be in the film. Amy Irving became the first actress to be nominated for an Academy Award and a Razzie for the same performance. She won either. <laughs> I'm sorry, but <laughs> that, that, so that, that, that sentence says so much. <laughs> um, Yentl's character was meant to be 26. Streisand was 40 when she played her. Hey, you know, 
they did it in Saved by the Bell and Beverly Hills 90210. Again, until obviously started the trend. But um, Steven Spielberg called the film the best directorial, the directorial debut since Citizen Kane in 1941. Uh, Steven, you can't get them all right. I'm sorry. <laughs> all right, guys. I had had no interest in watching this film whatsoever. And it was literally a movie that was playing after something else I was watching on HBO or Cinemax or whatever it was or Showtime. And I was doing some work and I went and looked. I'm like, oh, it's Yentl. Oh, okay. Well, I'm not going to watch it. And then like I was working going, wait a minute. Is this a musical? Please don't be a musical. And then all of a sudden I start hearing her sing. I'm like, ah, crap, it's a musical. <laughs> it's not that I don't like musicals. I just don't want to see Yentl and a musical. Uh, no offense to everyone that likes this film. I'm sorry. I have no interest in watching this. Uh, I've seen Barbara Streisand in other films that I've liked her in. I know she sneaks in the song whenever she can. Obviously, she's a wonderful singer. <sighs> I just don't need to see a musical based on this subject. Lacey. Okay. So from what I understand, the reason they said on the poster that it was a film with music is because they didn't want people to think it was a musical because of Fiddler on the Roof. Mm. Fiddler on the Roof had been like this kind of over the, I mean, it's, it's like a, a huge success, right? It's like over the top and singing the dance and everything, that kind of thing. So I, I, I feel like I read it in an article. I can't remember where. Uh, but they specifically said a film with music because it wasn't, you know, the singing, dancing, cha-cha-cha kind of musical. It was just a, a film that had music. So there's this whole kind of specific def definition of, of that on the poster. Gotcha. Uh, I agree. It's a very slow film, but I think that that was on purpose. I feel like the direction was fantastic. It's not really a subject matter that I'm terribly familiar with. Um, but it was informative in some ways. And then when it got to kind of some of the dramatic parts, like the relationships, I was kind of like, Ugh, no, you know, because it's not something that I wanted to watch. Um, it just, it felt stifled, which is, I think what it was supposed to feel like because she was a woman being stifled in the film. So it's, I think it all worked. It's just not a film that I would necessarily watch again because it is very dramatic and very, depressing yeah. influence. Uh, yeah. Kyle, your quick thoughts on Yentl. <sighs> Works for me. All right. Uh, <laughs> next we've got terms of endearment. This movie made a lot of money, just over $108 million in its theatrical run starring Deborah Winger, Shirley MacLaine, Jack Nicholson. Poster says, come to laugh, come to cry, come to care, come to terms. Terms of endearment. Follows Hard to Please Aurora Looking for Love and Her Daughter's Family Problems. Directed by James L. Brooks. Also co-starring Danny DeVito and John Lithgow. Kyle, our trivia on Terms of Endearment. At the end of production to congratulate him for completing his first movie, James L. Brooks received a book of Life in Hell cartoons drawn by Matt Groening. Brooks was so impressed he asked Groening to create cartoon shorts for the Tracy Ullman show, which led to The Simpsons. So Wait, hold on. Hold on. Is it becomes of terms of endearment? We have the Simpsons. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. You're yeah. telling me terms of endearment it was just responsible for the Simpsons. Oh my god. Yeah, wow. <laughs> <laughs> um it's the 80s, so we must have this story too. Deborah Winger er behaved erratically on the set because she was fighting severe cocaine addiction. It's the 80s. 
At one point, she and Shirley McLean, McLean got into a shoving match. Shirley McLean said Jack Nicholson would do crazy things on the set, like show up practically naked, and that a lot of their scenes were improvised. I'm willing to bet Jack was on cocaine as well. <laughs> <laughs> Shirley McLaine and Deborah Winger were both nominated for 1983 Best Actress Oscar, which went to McLean. On her way to the podium, she reportedly whispered to Winger, half of this belongs to you, which Winger reportedly replied, I'll take half. Um, John Lithgow was called in to replace another actor. His part was filmed in three days during a break from filming Footloose. I'm going to make it quick. Have had no interest in watching this film. Uh, I've seen a trailer for it. Don't care. Uh, Lacey, your thoughts on Terms of Endearment. Okay. So just want to say that out of all the films we've talked about today, they're all so dramatic and so much drama and everything's so sad and desperate and murder and war. And this is no different. Um, it, it, it was, it was so, it's so sad. And so, I mean, obviously it's supposed to be sad. It's basically, you know, um, the one thing I will say that I, I, I credit to this movie is that there is a scene in Gilmore girls where Lorelai comes into a hospital and she looks at her, the nurse and she's like, unless you want me to replay that scene from terms of a dream, you'll tell me where he is. Um, so that's the best thing about this movie. Is, is this the ultimate chick flick? It's awful. I'm a chick. With, I hate with, it. With beach, with beaches. It. It's a well done. You, you film. know, yeah. Watch. You're yeah. you're the exception, Lacey. You know what I mean, right? Um, this and beaches. Like, I feel like uh, you get some ladies doing a double feature out on a beach house somewhere, watching these two films and drinking uh, Chardonnay. You know. Yeah, I don't. I don't get the. <laughs> I don't get the the whole th concept of like women's films or like melodrama. It just I really want to smack people like i just like a lot of the melodramas especially 10 years prior to this it was so overly dramatized for the concept of you know women's films and all like that. i just it it's just silly and and silly is not my style and i just yeah. i want i want people to say things when they're supposed to say them instead of keeping things secret and then being like oh no i wish you knew and i'm like oh my god shut up um uh, yeah uh, it's bad Kyle, uh, have you seen this film? I have come to terms with the fact that I have never seen this movie. I, I see what you did there. I have come to the terms of the fact I will never see this movie. And the only way that I will ever see this movie is if somebody clicks me into the clockwork orange torture machine and makes me watch this movie. And Jennifer Walk, you better not get any ideas. <laughs> <laughs> it's the second time in the 80s that they tried to kill E.T. <laughs> um, All right, yeah. guys. Uh, we have one more film. And it is a, a, it's a comedy, if I remember yeah, correctly. Yeah, I was going to say, this is, this, is, this is a happy film. This is the happiest yeah. film we've covered. <laughs> yeah, this, this movie's called The Day After. <laughs> And what's funny was this was a TV film that did have a limited theatrical release. It only made $225,000 according to IMDb in the theaters. That's because everyone in the United States watched this on primetime television at eight o'clock and did not want to go to the theaters. The only people that probably saw this in the theaters were the ones that had to work that night and didn't have VCRs. The day after, guys, the poster says the most watched television movie in history. Tonight, relive the story of the day beyond imagining. The day after. 
starring Jason Robards, Joe Beth Williams, Steve Gutenberg, John Callum, John Lithgow, directed by Nicholas Meyer. Star Trek fame there. And I got a couple posters here, like perhaps the most important film ever made the day after when the war games are real. ABC Motion Pictures presents the day after. And of course, these um, posters were everywhere uh, or, or, or in newspapers everywhere the day after. And most famous, you see the explosion of the nuclear bomb in the background or the missiles taking off um, in Kansas. An ABC theater presentation, 8 p.m., the effects of a devastating nuclear holocaust on small town residents, the frightened story of the weeks leading up and to following a nuclear strike on the United States. The bulk of the activity centers around the town of Lawrence in Kansas. And I've had this movie playing in the background here, and I've just come to the very ending. And right before the credits start, here's what it says. The catastrophic event that have witnessed are in all likelihood less severe than the destruction that would actually occur in the events of a full nuclear strike against the United States. It is hoped that the images of this film will inspire the nations of this earth, their peoples and leaders to find the means to avert that fateful day. Guys, did this movie prevent world war three? And I'm going to throw that out there. Kyle, before you answer that question, please give us some trivia. The program originally aired November 20th, 1983. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. It remained the most watched TV movie in U.S. history. Estimates put the viewership at over 100 million Americans with a Nielsen share of 62%. The premiere of this television movie was a major media event. No sponsors bought commercial time after the nuclear war broke out, so the last half was aired without commercials. Before the film even aired, controversy arose over who attacked first, the USSR or the United States. Nicholas Meyer wanted the answer to remain ambiguous to focus on the horrors of nuclear destruction. He wanted the evil to be nuclear weapons in general, not government. I think immediately. It was wait, wait, what, Lacey? So I think it was Han. Han shot first. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. um, right. Immediately after the film's original broadcast, a special news program featured a live discussion between Dr. Carl Sagan, who opposed the use of nuclear weapons, and conservative writer William F. Buckley, who supported the concept of nuclear deterrence. Two weeks before the movie aired, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood aired a week of episodes titled Conflict that dealt with war and nuclear bombs. Many believed it was a direct response to the movie to help any children who may have seen it cope with the violence portrayed. The timing was pure coincidence. The episodes were written and produced at least a year before the movie aired. When production began, the nuclear attack scene was longer and supposed to feature extremely graphic yet very scientifically accurate shots of what happens to the human body during a nuclear blast. Examples included people being set on fire, flesh carbonizing, being burned to the bone, eyes melting, faceless heads, skin hanging, deaths from flying grass and breeze, limbs torn off, being crushed, blown from buildings by the shockwave, and people in fallout shelters suffocating during the firestorm. Also cut were images of radiation sickness as well as graphic post-attack violence from survivors such as food riots, looting, and general lawlessness as authorities attempted to restore order. Kyle, did you watch this when it first aired? I did not watch this when I first aired. I was forbidden from watching this. In fact, they aired it in my school, and my parents withheld me from school. During, they said their belief was that this is a lesson that we will, we will teach you. You do not need to be learning this from television. Fascinating. Uh, Lacey, uh, do you remember seeing this on TV? 
No, I did not see this on TV. I, for the longest time, again, testament in my brain, I had always been trying to find that, that one movie that I, that I was telling you about that one scene. And I had, I mean, you know, trust me, like even back when like it was like Friendster in MySpace, I would be like, Hey, does anybody remember this movie, this one scene, whatever. And so when I saw that both of these two films were on the list for tonight and I had read both of the ca- the captions or whatever, <laughs> my goal was to ask you guys if that was, which one was the movie that I, I that has scarred me for life. Um, it's Testament and I have no interest in needing to watch the day after because that's just terribly scary. And why would anybody do that? Because I mean, I'm on enough anxiety medication as it is. It's fine. <laughs> I will say that it does change the, um, the, 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 the goal or the effect of uh, the movie the night before. The night before? Yeah, I'm, j- I'm joking. It was, it's a Keanu Reeves, Lori yeah. Loughlin movie. Oh, yes. I have that movie. <laughs> yes, I like that movie. That's good. Kyle. What's so fascinating about the day after and how big of an event it was, because even living in Alaska, they were talking about this. That's at a point where we weren't getting necessarily live television all the time. Um, Dialing up on people's fear to a thousand, but actually dialing down the reality of it. it. It's, it's such an interesting thing because there is, I mean, when I, I, I rewatched this about two months ago, I found it on YouTube and yeah, it's poor quality. It was probably a eight or nine VHS tr- transfer, but you're watching this and being, I guess, Kevin, you and I, and Lacey, especially you and I being children of the eighties and it, Lacey, we grew, we grew up with nuclear wars in our movies with Terminator and everything like that. And you watch this and you go, that's not even close to what would really happen. But then you think about this was on TV. There's no way they could show what was really yeah. going to happen and get away with it. But they played on the fear aspect so well in the marketing and in the show itself. I wonder Speaking if that's the market, why they did the theater. I wonder if that's why they had a theatrical release is to add those few other scenes. Yeah, possibly. Mm-hmm. And, Speaking of the marketing, whatever you were watching on ABC a couple of months prior, they were promoting this film like forever. And then you'd see it in print in the newspaper ads, you know, in big newspaper ads. And, I, you know, like I said right here, these are actually newspaper ads right here. These pictures that I'm showing you here. Uh, you, you couldn't get around this with these scary pictures of missiles taking off and then the uh, mushroom cloud in the back. And I actually found it on DVD at a thrift store. I ended up getting it and I, and, uh, uh, I, I have it playing right now. And I actually, I'm kind of disappointed that the, just the, the DVD that I'm holding up here actually just has the nuclear explosion, kind of a generic nuclear explosion. I thought that it would have been better if they actually had like the one where the girl's looking up at the sky and all the missiles are taking off behind her. That would have been a better DVD cover. Um, I have a DVD uh, cover that's the other one on the left. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, gotcha. I, have the, I have it on um, DVD. It's the one on the left. I bought it before I realized what it was. So uh, we watched this live when it happened. And um, I remember the, uh, I remember hearing about the, um, I, I remember watching the Carl Sagan thing with my parents because we watched Cosmos. So that was a big thing. I remember hearing about the uh, um, Mr. Rogers Neighborhood. But on top of that, our school had a topic about this afterwards. Even counseling was provided if need be. 
talking about this because during this time, it was a real thing, you know. Yes, there was the stop, drop, and roll if you caught on fire, but the, there was the other, let's get underneath our desks here because of a nuclear war. That's going to save us, right? Um, after rewatching this, though, I was surprised and reminded how graphic this movie actually got, especially with the initial blast showing the people turning to, you know, bright skeletons and and seeing like a, they showed a classroom of these kids and all of a sudden, boom, you see their skeletons and it gets red. And and then afterwards, you start seeing people going through the the, the, the sickness, you know, and Steve Gutenberg losing all of his hair. Jason Robards at the end, you know, dropping to his knees with all the destruction around him, you know, and um, just kind of seeing people deal with the aftermath of it, which is almost even scarier to think about. And just, you know, this movie had a huge impact and yes, it did play into the fear, but the bigger question though is, did this movie bring awareness to the destruction that we were all feeling that could possibly happen? Did this turn people's, did, did this, did world leaders see this film and go, all right, let's work harder at this piece. Lacey. I was going to say, I think that in 1983 in November, that would have been the first year that I was in private school. So if it didn't involve Jesus fixing the problem, we didn't watch <laughs> it in class. Yeah. yeah. Like that was it. Like there was no, there was no programming that would have been maybe potential. I, I don't, I don't remember even hearing any of my friends talk about this. Yeah. Um, what, what I find interesting too, Kyle, is this movie did not like repeat. You didn't no, see this movie come one time, back. One and done. Yeah. You didn't see it on home video for years. And it was always one of those movies you talk about. Like, you remember the day after? Like, yeah. You remember watching it? Oh, my God. Yeah, it scared the crap out of us. But it was like never in the in the video stores. And then finally, they started releasing them. Obviously, I've got the DVD here. Uh, but it was something you didn't see around anymore. You know, I mean, of course, there was other films that talked about post-apocalyptic stuff. You know, you had Terminator uh, 1 and 2. But this movie, it's still pretty tough to watch. And it's still pretty freaking scary of what can happen in nuclear. And there was also some real footage of, I guess, test shots. I've noticed uh -huh. from, um, you know, when they would do the the testing, um, Bikini Atoll and all that kind of stuff and out in the Pacific or whatever. But um, yeah, it's it's a tough one. But I, I want to say, I'm going to say it right here, hot take, one of the most important movies in history um, I think yes and no I think it is definitely one it is very historical there, there's no doubt about that because nothing was ever quite marketed like the day after it hasn't been since they're really it, it's a it's, it's very much a unique point in time I think there has really truly truly to this day, there is nothing scarier than the nuclear threat because you never know when some crazy person is going to get their hands on something and yeah. it could start a chain reaction. This new picture um, I put up here, that is a full page newspaper ad that came out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, um, that is a scary, simple but scary image of a woman outside her, her country home and behind her, missiles are taken off. You know, so it, I, I, can I put in a little perspective because of where I was living at the time? Uh, you could see if I remember correctly, Kyle, you could see Russia from your uh, front yard, right? 
it was such a bizarre the whole nuclear thing living in alaska was really bizarre because all of a sudden alaska was always like the strategic point we're not we can't nuke too close to alaska because we need the oil russia's not going to nuke alaska because they don't they basically be like nuking themselves yeah and pretty much. so it's just it was there was a different mindset of this whole thing i mean it was still scary and and everything like that. But I remember growing up and what the biggest actually affected me of nuclear Holocaust was learning about Hiroshima in school and seeing movies about Hiroshima and seeing even uh, a Japanese anime film that showed the effects of Hiroshima. And you see the people melting and stuff like that freaks me out. So you brought up an interesting point, Kyle, that Aaron and I have talked about my wife that, um, Whenever the, this whole threat of nuclear war, the big discussion was where, how close did you live to a city, a major city that would be targeted by Russia, basically? And I'm living in Santa Barbara. I'll, I'll get to you in just a second, Lucy. I'm living in Santa Barbara. There's LA just south of me that could be nuked. So there's always that discussion of the blast zone. Like, would you be irradiated? (laughs) My wife says it the best. Would you be irradiated right away? Or would you become the guy from RoboCop at the end that has the toxic weight put all over him? But I was also, I'm living right next to Vandenberg Air Force Base, which was a missile testing site. (laughs) So Santa Barbara screwed. I'm just telling you right now. Lacey, what about you? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I remember having a conversation with somebody uh, back in the day saying, you know, I mean, it had nothing to do with this, of course, but um, it, it was, you know, well, I mean, if, if someone's going to hit us, they'll pick like Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, you know, New York, like, you know, the, t- the high value targets, right? I mean, I'm in Atlanta. That's not a high right. value target. And the response was, you live seven miles from the CDC. Yeah. That's yeah. a like, huge <laughs> high value. T- and I went, oh. Uh, it's like here, not living. Didn't even occur to me. <laughs> like, yeah. where, I, where I live now, just about 40 minutes uh, south of Tampa, McDill Air Force Base, which is like one of the top military institutions in the yeah. United States as far as strategic command. <laughs> so I was like, yeah. yeah. Right? <laughs> All right. So, guys, that is the day after. Uh, it was interesting revisiting that. I just uh, watched it today, and I had it replaying here. Very, very interesting to, to see that again. I, I, I'm good with not seeing it again. I'm yeah, just going to no. throw that at you. All right, guys, before we close things out, we do have quickly the cutting room floor, a few films that we've chosen. And, you know, I just threw in a couple of these, uh, ho- uh, these uh, horror films, the Amityville 3D. Everything was coming out in 3D. The third film had to be in 3D. Uh, and then we had Sleepaway Camp. And when I mentioned these films to my wife, who is a huge horror fan, she's like, oh, wait a minute, but you got to watch Sleepaway Camp. Like, do I really say, at least watch it for the very end. Spoiler alert, the, yep. girl's, a du- the girl's a dude. And I'm like, really? It's like, yeah, just watch the very end of it. So I went, <laughs> I found it streaming for free online. I ended up watching like the last, the, the end of it. But it was kind of frustrating because it had those commercial breaks and I couldn't fast forward to the commercial breaks. But I finally got to the end and there was this guy playing a cop, by the way, who had the most horrible fake mustache ever. But the ending scene is quite um, dramatic and a little scary because you do see this woman who appears to be a woman um, with this knife in her hand with blood all over her. And she's got a thing. (laughs) She's a dude. (laughs) 
And there you go. There you go. That's that's the spoiler there. So um, so glad they didn't have this. Is the horror what? version? Is the horror version of the uh, the 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 crying game? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. Yep, yep. Okay. yep. So yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, and I didn't. I've never saw Amityville 3D. Uh, anyone, real quick, seen these? I just nope. remember when I was when when Sleepaway Camp came out. I remember there being like all the guys in the in my grade were like, "Oh my gosh, this is the Sleepaway Camp! Oh, he's got a he's got a dick!" You know, like it was very. I didn't need to see the movie. <laughs> I knew exactly what had happened at the end of the film. Every guy in the class was, you know, I mean, oh. yeah. So, all right, uh, guys, let's wrap this up here. Of course, the top grossing, grossing movies of 1983. We're not done yet with the year. We still got um, uh, the month of December to talk about, but yes, uh, one of the films that we have discussed today was terms of endearment. Didn't make it into the top, uh, 10 films there uh, and it was at number two number two at 108 million dollars right behind not right behind return of the jedi which is at the top at 309 all right guys wow. let's go ahead and close this out guys this has been time warp uh 1983 part six discussing uh october and november uh first of all lacy any final thoughts on this segment of films October and November were very dramatic in 1983. Yes. <laughs> Dang. Is there any of these films that you would watch that you haven't seen? No, but I definitely am going to, as soon as uh, Nate and Hayes comes in, I'm definitely going to rewatch that because it's been like, it's been a minute since I've and, seen And there's, it, so. there's, there's some, um, uh, some movie uh, sequel to Saturday Night Live I've been waiting for you to watch. Yeah, I know. And I keep trying, but it just keeps <laughs> it keeps, it keeps evading me somehow. And and they're actually just releasing a 4K of it for like 12 bucks, and I still just can't bring myself to buy it. And what film is it? It's Staying Alive. I know. Staying Alive. Yes, I do like Staying Alive better than Saturday Night Live. <laughs> I am that guy. Uh, Kyle, your thoughts on this uh, block of films? Final thoughts. What's interesting to me revisiting this particular block of films is even though they're a little bit on the dramatic side or just not the best of films, they are a group of films that really represents this time period. In media. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. That's fair. For, 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 for good or bad, it represents mm -hmm. it. But my, my, my biggest thought is what are we going to do the day after this podcast when we enter the dead zone? <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, this is Time Warp Movies of 1983. Uh, thank you for watching us. If you're watching us on the Fandom Podcast Network YouTube channel, if you're not, please give us a subscribe, like, share it out. We need some more uh, subscribers. Help us out on YouTube. And also the audio podcast, of course, drops on fpnet.podbean.com. Uh, and of course, if you are allowed to leave us a review on your podcast provider, please do, especially on Apple Podcasts and iTunes. You can find Fandom Podcast Network on Facebook. You can email us at fandompodcastnetwork at gmail.com. Fandom Podcast Network is also on Instagram and X. My name is Kevin Reitzel. I am on Twitter, uh, X, and Instagram and threads at Spartan underscore Phoenix. Kyle, where can we find you? You can find me on X, formerly known as Twitter, uh, as at AKyleW. You can find me on Instagram and threads at AKyleFandom. And right now, Kevin, too, I want to take a, a moment to promote Couch Potato Theater the day after 
April 1st, 2024. <laughs> Lacey, where can we find you? I'm going to need a minute now. <laughs> right. um, you can find me uh, remodeling my house. Um, <laughs> the money uh, pit. Yeah, I know. So uh, Facebook, I'm Lacey Pants. Um, X, I'm Lacey Pants. Uh, Instagram, the Lacey Pants. I think awesome. that's it. Well, thank you guys for joining me. Appreciate you. I love talking time warp with you too. You make this a lot of fun. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you guys. All right, guys, until next time, we're going to be discussing part seven, our final installment of 1983 movies and pop culture uh, for all celebrating the 40th anniversary. And we're going to be talking about the movies in December and the 1983 award shows. Cause things get interesting there. Anyway, until next time, guys, we will see you in 1983.